All right, hello, uh, I'm here with Daniel Brooks. He is a founder of 3GNY, a nonprofit for the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who educates the public about the Holocaust. He's also on the director of the Fuel for Truth and an educator with Club Z, both nonprofits dedicated to Israel education. Um, before we get started, but and before I forget, I wanna give a quick shout out to Jared Sapolsky, my uh, birthright counselor for putting us in contact. Uh, Daniel, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you so much for coming on. Sure, can I just offer one quick uh, little correction? Um, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the introduction and the resume. I, I do volunteer with Fuel for Truth. Um, I'm not director of Fuel for Truth. Um, oh, I'm sorry about um, that. No, right. The director is great, um, but I, I work with him at times. Um, I'm just a, a educator, facilitator, but yeah. Okay. Essentially, Fuel for Truth and, and Club Z, which you mentioned, are similar organizations. They're educational organizations that facilitate productive conversations. Uh, Fuel for Truth is young professionals, and Club Z is for teenage uh, high school students. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about um, what you do with, with those organizations and kind of um, what you see your role as before we maybe get too much into the weeds with, with the conflict at hand? Sure. Um, so just a little background on me. I, uh, I grew up in New York City. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a grandchild of survivors, Holocaust survivors, um, have some family in Israel, actually, but I never grew up very plugged into what's going on in Israel or, or the news there. I have Israeli cousins, but um, didn't really know too much through my cousins. I just, you know, was generically pro-Israel, more or less. Um, maybe knowing, you know, uh, basic, basic stuff, but it was really the second Inifada uh, which was around 2000, 2001, where I started to read coverage of Israel and I got very motivated by that, that coverage. I, I felt that it was being unfair to Israel, but I didn't exactly know why it was unfair. And that concerned me that I didn't know why. Like I just, it wasn't acceptable that I didn't like something, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. So from that point on, I did my own research. Um, I, I just poured through books and online and I, I read up on the history and leading up to that day. And um, since then I haven't stopped. So I've become, as I've educated myself, I've become a vocal advocate um, for the most part um, of the truth. And that's really what motivated me. I felt that something was not being truthful in, in the coverage of Israel. Um, and yes, I, I felt, I positively identified with Israel, but it was really like, I felt something was off in terms of the what was being presented. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, just to speed up to present day, I. Um, I was doing independent activism, and a friend said, you got to join this Fuel for Truth. You know, you're, you'll meet like-minded people. Uh, there's also diversity of thoughts. So I showed up to these Tuesday night sessions going on for three months. It was good. Um, learned some new things. And uh, they liked what I had to say, and they kept me on as a facilitator, an educator. I actually presented some classes. Um, was hired part-time for a little bit. And then from there, uh, there was a connection with this Club Z, um, you know, which is Zionism for Teens, as it's called. Um, and so basically what it does, it's similarly structured, I guess, in that there's weekly sessions. Um, every Sunday, uh, teenagers in New York City, primarily in Brooklyn, are dropped off by their parents, had a, what we call a clubhouse, you know, private location where they learn about the history, um, learn how to have productive conversations with, um, with peers, which, as we're going to get into, is increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then maybe just one other quick question before we get you know, we, we dive into this. So um, I think especially, I'm especially curious with your Club Z participants. Um, 
are you guys having discussions with you know people that aren't really aren't Jewish, aren't of Jewish background or have connections with Israel and just trying to communicate or trying to increase communication there as well? Exactly. Um, I would say these teens primarily are in public school mm -hmm. um, in, in Brooklyn and Staten Island. I know um, several in Manhattan and they um, even before this flare up in the last several weeks, they would have conversations with peers, you know, classmates uh, who range from being friends to just acquaintances. And sometimes Israel would come up uh, in social media and they either were perhaps asked directly or they might have just seen one of their classmates post something that they thought was a little off and they would like engage in conversation with, with their classmates. But now with this latest um, uh, storm, they're getting a lot, they're seeing a lot of this. They're seeing a lot of acquaintances and classmates post things not directly at them, but just spreading them. And, and they're very concerned because they feel that they're, um, they're maligning Israel and, and Zionism. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So why don't we um, jump into what's going on here, which, you know, is a lot. Um, but I kind of want to start, I guess, with this recent flare up in activity and maybe start um, with the incident at the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque on Ramadan. Right. And um, why don't you give your, um, you know, your what I, I guess I'm struggling to say this because everything in this seems to be, you know, through everyone's or someone's interpretation. But you know, what, what, why don't you um, go over how the the events of that evening? Sure. Um, well, it's good to also try to fit some of these things into a, a greater timeline, which I think is what you were you were alluding to. Yeah. Uh, because it all kind of snapped together a little bit. So, but I will say we could start with Al Aqsa. Um, just for those who, who might not know what Al-Aqsa means, Al-Aqsa is the third holiest site in Islam. Um, if you're ever facing the Western Wall in Jerusalem, I don't know if you've been to Israel or Jerusalem, yeah. Michael? Uh, yeah, right, because that's, of course, that's how you met Jared. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're facing the wall, it's, it's, there are two mosques. You see like the big golden dome on the left, which is, it's, it's technically a shrine, but people consider it a mosque. That's uh, the Dome of the Rock. That's the more, I guess, the big... Um, skyline, um, uh, you know, special part of the sky, the Jerusalem skyline, everyone knows, the, the Golden Mosque. The, the grayer mosque to the right, when you're facing the wall, that's Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it is revered by, by Muslims as the third holy site where Muhammad, uh, they believe, uh, took off um, to heaven. You know? So just to give that background, um, and, and the mosque is also, and this is relevant to what I'm going to get into, the mosque is also sits atop what's called the Temple Mount. Um, which is if you're facing the Western Wall, it's like a big um, platform above the Western Wall that's actually the holiest site in, in Judaism. Um, it's, it's considered, the, it has the foundational stone where, where it's considered according to Jewish tradition, you know, um, uh, Isaac, uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac, um, and um, also where the two holy temples were um, before the Roman exile in, in, in the first century. So it's very it's revered by Jews. Um, so it's become a flashpoint because it's so revered by, by Jews and Muslims. And I will say, as I get into this, it's, it's, I was speaking to a friend about this um, yesterday. Out of all the issues we feel that have been misrepresented and misreported, the Al-Aqsa Mosque um, incidents have been the most misreported by far. And, and I would say just crim criminally negligent the media has been in depicting them as being attacks on worshipers. So what happened was... Um, in relation to, and we'll get into that if you want to, in relation to the Sheikh Jarrah 
um, East Jerusalem evictions or the prospective evictions of Palestinians there, there were organized uh, protests, which sometimes devolve into, into riots, you know, violent protests around Sheikh Jarrah, which is in East Jerusalem. It's very close to where this is. This is like the walled city of Jerusalem, as, as you might know. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's very close in walking distance to the Temple Mount. And um, so these um, protests were spearheaded by the Palestinian Authority, which has nominal control or jurisdiction in some parts of, of East Jerusalem, mostly not, but they do, um, they, are, they are able to at least commandeer a lot of attention from the Arab, the Muslim, um, sorry, the Palestinian street. And so they did make a lot of the Sheikh Jarrah um, court case. And so they did inspire and instigate a lot of these um, protests and riots. Um, Hamas in Gaza was seeing what was going on. And as we know, Hamas and Fatah are always competing. So Daniel, can you actually pause for a second? So, um, you know, one, one thing that is so, I think, difficult for people to, uh, in trying to understand this is there is so much history. Um, so maybe just, I, I know I, I asked you to talk about the, um, the events at Al-Aqsa, maybe back up a little bit and talk first about uh, Sheikh Jarrah and what's going on there, just so listeners have the, the context for this. Sure, and that's that's been um, considered sort of the spark for, for a lot of you know a lot of this, right? So, Sheikh Jarrah um, is the Arabic name for a neighborhood in um, in Jerusalem. It's technically called East Jerusalem. Um, the Hebrew name is Shimon Hatzadik um, because it's a site of a revered Jewish sage um, in the first century. So it's got importance for Jews as well. This this neighborhood had an enclave, a Jewish enclave in it, going back a few hundred years. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was basically the path of a, pilgrim, a pilgrimage that Jews took to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. This is back, you know, in the, in the first century. Um, so there's histor history in this neighborhood. In the 1870s, um, Sephardic Jews, primarily from Yemen, uh, purchased this uh, land in Sheikh Jarrah. It was very small, very desolate, quiet uh, neighborhood just outside of the Jerusalem walls, the old city walls back in, back in the day, in the 1870s. Jerusalem was not the sprawling city that we know it today. It was really like not many neighborhoods outside of the walls. This was one of those few neighborhoods. So um, Jews purchased this property. They populated um, this uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. There was sort of this Jewish enclave there. And then fast forward to the 1948 War of Independence and uh, the Jordanian army takes over this neighborhood in Jerusalem, which just happened to be uh, where the army stopped during that war that the Jews did not have possession of this part of Jerusalem. It fell under the Jordanian rule. Um, so Jordan took over these properties and as part of their own laws, they gave these properties to um, Palestinian Arabs. And so actually they, they gave these particular properties to Palestinian Arabs um, who, were, who fled the war um, from, from the other part of Jerusalem. And um, so these, these Arabs, Palestinian Arabs were living there since 1948. Um, and then, um, actually they were, it was just land. They, they actually built up, um, their own properties on there or actual homes. Um, so now we fast forward to the 1967 war. And as we know, Israel, um, you know, re, uh, recaptured, uh, Judea Samaria, West, uh, West Bank, as it was called and East Jerusalem. So they united Jerusalem and they brought into their possession. Israel did this neighborhood called Sheikh Jar. And, um, Israel allowed once once they did it was actually it was until the it was ninth, early seventies and this is kind of when the Sheikh Jarrah thing really got kicked off with this court case. So in the early seventies, the Israeli courts decided we are going to allow uh, private litigation, you know, private parties to um, basically 
um, bring to the court property claims. Um, now, whether that was, now they didn't specify only Jews. Uh, they said, you know, any citizen of Israel can bring property claims um, for land that was in enemy hands, right? So, but of course, in this particular, it being that Israel lost property to Arab states, uh, it was mostly Jews who were going to be pursuing this litigation. So um, Jews brought this, the Jews who own this property brought this case to uh, municipal courts in Jerusalem. They said, this is our property. Here are the deeds. We have the proof. And the Israeli courts decided uh, initially, yes, you do have uh, ownership rights. However, these Arab tenants have been there now for a few decades, and we're going to make them protected tenants, quote unquote, because it would be unfair to evict them because um, they've already, you know, it's more than a generation since they've lived there. And this actually went back and forth. The Jewish owners didn't like this. He actually wanted to be in that neighborhood. But um, because of the protected status of the Arabs, the court cases went back and forth and back and forth. There were appeals. This has dragged on for now like over 40 years. It's, it's crazy how sometimes the Israeli, Israeli court system with an appeals process can keep things going. Wow. Uh, and so just to fast forward through the timeline, um, once the Palestinian Authority became... Um, the governing body of the Palestinians on the ground. This is part of the Oslo Peace Accords in the early 90s. Um, they made a, a lot of things political. So they made certain, you know, certain things like this, you could say are political um, by birth. You know, anytime you have property disputes with this conflict. But why I'm bringing that up, because um, even though the tenants initially said they didn't want to uh, pay rent, they actually refused to pay rent, even though they were given this protected status. Um, and the Israeli courts didn't actually want to enforce the eviction because there was a humanitarian issue. At a certain point, the Arab tenants actually indicated to the owners they want to settle because they were offered such a sweetheart deal. We don't know the details of this deal. And in fact, this is a, an aspect of the story. Unfortunately, it isn't super documented because I could, we could understand that the Arab tenants do not want to go on record as saying that they passed up a deal and they really want to get out of there because then they would be considered as the Palestinian Authority called them traitors. And the Palestinian Authority had appointed a lawyer to represent these tenants and the lawyer, this is only um, um, recently in the last several years, told the families, you cannot settle. You cannot, you have to stay in these properties, right? Because this, this is now like a political flashpoint for us. And if you leave these properties, it's going to sort of tell um, the Israelis, tell the Zionists that uh, we're going to give up Jerusalem. So they kind of saw it as a bigger, a bigger part of the conflict, um, these players, these power players, the Palestinian Authority. Um, so essentially the owners, had, the uh, tenants had no choice. They couldn't settle. And so now here's where we are. And so this only came up when it did is because um, it just happened to come up on the docket for the Supreme Court. You know, as we know, the Sup Supreme Court in, in Israel tends to be more liberal. The, um, the, the claimants said, uh, you know, the tenants, you know, appealed and they got it to, to get all the way up to the Supreme Court. So this was sort of on the schedule of the Supreme Court. The fact that it happened to be announced around Ramadan, again, the announcement was on Ramadan. It wasn't the possible eviction of the court case itself. It was the announcement of the date of the Supreme Court hearing was made on Ramadan. I think it was going to be a few weeks later, but um, be that as it may, the fact that it was Ramadan was seized on by uh, political forces among the Palestinians who didn't want to make this, you know, a, a spark of religious conflict here. So um, again, no evictions have happened. Um, there are several families who are under risk of eviction. Um, and so this is what the protests surrounding those evictions is what spilled over into Al-Aqsa, and then Hamas jumped on it with the rocket attacks from Gaza, just to sort of loop this all together. I hope that wasn't like too chunky. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot. It was, it was no, a lot. I mean, there, I mean, there, there's a lot going on. Is, yes, the, the properties are owned by Jews. Nobody's claiming otherwise. The properties are owned by Jews. Um, but that has barely been reported. Um, I think 
and what's not been reported is that this, these tenants were um, basically threatened to not settle with the Israeli owners. So could you explain a little bit more um, what that what what that means? Uh, they were that they're not supposed to settle with them. So yeah, this is again not nothing that's been. I've seen this on various blogs. Unfortunately, I couldn't you know send you. Um, a New York Times article about this because it's just sort of word of mouth that some of these tenants did let um, associates know or some friends, Israeli Arab friends, that they had a settlement on the table. So the, the logic in, in the Palestinian Authority threatening them to not accept a settlement with this Jewish settlement organization is that the Palestinian Authority, and this is run by Mahmoud Abbas, you know, he's, he's sort of the, he was the heir to Arafat uh, from the Fatah party, um, and they're considered the quote-unquote more moderate Palestinian political branch. Um, but they have, since the Oslo Accords in 1993, and it got into power on the ground, they've used their media to incite against Israel and Zionism and to say that we're going to fight the Zionist entity. So this, they're um, threatening these Palestinian tenants is part along the same lines of making sure that all these property, uh, that these property disputes and even Jerusalem is always uh, made an issue, that the war against Israel keeps raging on, and that they are seen as the lead um, resistance in the, in the fight against Israel. Um, so it's also the Palestinian Authority has laws in the books about Arabs uh, being banned from selling land to Jews throughout the, the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, so we could, you know, we, of course we could say that's, I don't know if you knew that. I, I did not. Um, yes, yeah, so, so one thing that I kind of want to talk a little bit about, maybe this is getting away from the details and more into kind of a bigger discussion is, uh, so do you think that Israel has a, a partner that they can work with in the Palestinian Authority or in Hamas? Um, so normally people would respond by starting with Hamas saying like, absolutely not Hamas. Uh, and they might, and I'm, I'm speaking of like pro-Israel. Uh -huh. They would say definitely not Hamas because Hamas is very clear saying we'll never accept, you know, Jews running this land, it's his Islamic land. Every now and then Hamas might say something mealy-mouthed or um, ambiguous to like a Western reporter to say, oh, we accept, you know, Palestine and the West Bank and Gaza. You know, we sort of accept that as a, a short-term temporary arrangement. Mm -hmm. Now we'll move on to the, to the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority, their job is to maintain international legitimacy with the world. Because when, you know, when dignitaries visit the Palestinian territories um, or they talk about the issue, they normally focus on the, the PA, we'll just call it PA for short, yeah. Palestinian Authority. And because the PA made an agreement with Israel back in the 90s to say, we will take over the West Bank or at least parts of the West Bank that are populated by the Palestinians. That was the agreement with Oslo, that Israel would withdraw from Palestinian cities and other areas in the West Bank, hand it over to the PA, which would administer it. And then it was assumed that several years later, this is the 90s, several years later, um, after the PA met certain metrics, um, Israel would give more land and establish a Palestinian state. Now, this wasn't stated like explicitly in Oslo, but this was, was sort of the understanding. Um, so since that time, the Palestinian Authority, unfortunately, has been very on record, at least internally to their own public, that they consider Oslo just another phase in the war against Israel. They're happy to accept land withdrawals but they don't want, uh, they don't see Zionism as legitimate in any way. They don't see Jews controlling that land as, as legitimate. They, they have spoken uh, strongly in, in um, fundamentalist religious terms because sometimes Fatah is considered more secular to Hamas, which is more like the Muslim Brotherhood. 
So I guess if you're going to do a side by side, you might say that Fatah is slightly more secular. They do have secular components. Yeah. Could you just back, back up a second and then um, I, maybe we should have done this beforehand. Um, just explain very quickly what Fatah is and what Hamas is sure. for people who aren't familiar. Yeah, please. Uh, thank I appreciate you asking. Fatah is the um, historically the first Palestinian political or national movement. It was started in 1959. Um, and, um, that, and, and Fatah was the, the main political party for the, the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, which was for decades the face of the Palestinian cause. So from the, you know, from the 60s onward, you had Yasser Arafat, you know, um, representing the Palestinians. The PLO was, was sort of an out-and-out -out terrorist organization, hijacking airplanes, you know, shooting Israeli uh, citizens in Europe. Um, we know about the Munich Olympics. They had their hand in that, where they massacred Israeli athletes there in 1972. Um, so they were essentially the face of the Palestinian cause, and they actually were very protective of that status. Their, um, their tagline was always... Um, the, uh, the sole representative of the Palestinian people. So clearly there's some insecurity issues here in terms of, of them being the sole representatives. So um, they were the ones, they were basically, they were the address that um, foreign diplomats went to to try to convince them to make peace with Israel. And so um, when the Cold War was wrapping up in the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, as you know, the Soviet Union supported the Arab states and the, Pal and the PLO, um, some of the logic shifted uh, from the, the PLO because the PLO was not in power at the time, it sort of ended on the ground anywhere. They had bounced around from Jordan to Syria to Lebanon to Tunisia. And so when the 90s um, uh, got underway, th they shifted their strategy to one about uh, politics. They thought they knew that they couldn't defeat Israel on the battlefield, right? They're just this terrorist group. So then they sort of put out feelers and said, you know what, we want to make a deal with Israel. And so they shifted the conflict from one of like external enemies to one of like internally, this is gonna be sort of an on the ground battle um, for the land. Um, so again, that's, that's Fatah. Um, and again, they go back to 1959, the PLO was founded in 1964 and they've really been the main address uh, for this, um, the Palestinian, I guess, um, identity people. In, the, in 1987, uh, Hamas was created. Hamas came out of the Gaza Strip. This is already 20 years when Israel is occupying the Gaza Strip. And Hamas is um, uh, considered an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, which goes back to the early 20s in Egypt. They're a fundamentalist uh, Islamic organization. Um, Egypt, uh, the more secular Egyptian government for decades, we're not gonna go into Egypt, but they've always fought against the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and um, so Hamas uh, actually started out as an Islamic charity that wasn't committed to terrorism. Yes, they were not fans of Israel. They, they did speak about not making peace with, with Israel, but they did not um, engage in terrorism in the, in the 1980s, right? They were really more local charities. They had soup kitchens, they had clinics, health clinics, they had schools, hospitals. And so Israel actually initially worked with them. They thought, all right, these people are not like the PLO. They're not bombing buses and, and, and uh, hijacking airplanes. So when the Oslo Accords happened in 1993, Hamas was outraged um, that the PLO would even have a pretense of making peace with, with Israel. And that's when, the, that's when Hamas radicalized to the point of committing to terrorism. And so the first terrorist acts by Hamas were in um, late 1993, early 1994. They, they sent suicide bombers to Israel to, to bomb buses. And that was them saying to the Fatah or the PLO, we're not going to even accept you pretending to make peace with Israel. Because Fatah was saying to their own people in Arabic, this is a fake peace, trust us. This is just a way to like move the conflict to a different stage. And Hamas said, even just signing agreements with Israel is unacceptable. And so that's when they got, to, got into the terrorism game. 
So I think now we're, we're familiar a bit with Hamas and Fatah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, Not, I, this, none of this is good news. No. So maybe let's focus more on Fatah and the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think it's it's fairly clear that Hamas doesn't want to accept Israel, that they're more than happy to launch rockets into Israel. So, so my question, does Israel have any, have oh, a partner to work with in Fatah or the Palestinian Authority? Uh, or the short answer, no. Um, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I couldn't give you all the names of all the senior Fatah uh, representatives. I've read, I read a lot about them. There have been times where you've had, I guess, more pragmatic Fatah politicians who are at least are willing to work on the ground with Israel to facilitate maybe a stronger Palestinian economy. These are some Fatah politicians who might not be big fans of terrorism because they, they see it as holding up a productive Palestinian economy. You can't have a functioning economy when you have border closures and things like that that result from terrorism. Unfortunately, Fatah is, is still committed to um, war against Israel, um, you know, basically um, a war against Israel's existence. Um, and unfortunately, you know, they've played this, du this double game of saying one thing to non-Palestinians in the West and, and something else to Palestinians. Now, if Israelis live there, and it doesn't mean every Israeli speaks or understands Arabic, but there are clearly enough Israelis who, Israeli Jews who get Arabic who understand, and they, they know what Fatah says. So Israelis right away, and maybe we'll get into this difference between Israeli Jews and American Jews, Israelis understand Fatah's game. So, you know, so the whole concept of making peace with the PLO as the more moderate party is really scoff at that suggestion. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is, at least in your opinion, Israel does not have a partner in, you know, in this. And so what I, what I, what I think happens and, you know, again, just to stay, I'm not entirely pro-Israel. I'm not entirely anti-Israel. I, I try to be neutral in this is that everything Israel does gets put under a magnifying glass and everything that Palestine does kind of gets excuses made for it. So, well, you know, it's, it's, it's fine that they're launching hundreds of rockets out of Gaza given what Israel does. But I, for, for some reason, it seems to me that people don't that people are willing to look past terrorist acts for this um and i i know a lot of people claim that there's anti-semitism kind of that underlying this um propensity to villainize israel and turn the palestinian people into martyrs do, do you think that's true do you think there's anti-semitism at play that's a, that's a good question. That's such a complicated question. I do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, but, you know, with, with coverage of Israel, it, it's, it, it's so misinformed um, and, and across the spectrum. I, I, it's just very rare to get coverage that really, like you said, covers the Palestinians, what they're doing and what mm -hmm. they may be doing wrong. Can you explain more how, how you feel it's misinformed? Sure. So um, as, as we're kind of alluding to, there is a big omission in coverage, it's not as much really what's reported, although that, you know, what's reported is mangled or misreported or, or there are errors or things left out. But what it's, the issue is what's omitted. So it's not simply what, it's, it's error by omission, not commission. Mm -hmm. That there's, the Palestinian politics is even a term you don't hear, right? It's as if they really don't have politics. Um, so the media doesn't really report 
yes, they might report Hamas. You know, we know about Hamas, we know about Abbas, but we don't really know what they're doing. And so, you know, one issue that the one term you hear from Israelis a lot, and rightfully so, is the term incitement, right? Or the word incitement. And what that means is that both Hamas and Fatah using their media, their radio channels, their TV, their print media, social media. This is going on already for at least Fatah since the early 90s in Oslo when they, when they got access to this power. It's been to incite against the Jews. So full-on Nazi-like anti-Semitic incitement, uh, calls for war. And this goes, I would say, virtually utterly unreported in Western media. If it is ever reported, it's sort of reported as, as an Israeli accusation or a claim. And they'll balance it out with like, well, the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority it accuses Israel of incitement. And maybe they'll cite some aggressive speeches or a comment by an Israeli uh, Knesset member, for instance. But no one's gonna, people don't really cover the, uh, the endemic nature of this incitement. And that's, okay. it's, it's unfortunate because um, it's very powerful. So that's one thing. And you mentioned terrorism. I would actually say intent, intentions are more important than specific acts, although terrorism should be condemned. We shouldn't target civilians. But the argument out there is that this is because Palestinians are feeling despair, right? That they're sort of driven to this because they don't have a state you know they're in this they're, they're facing hardships but that's that that thesis is blown out of the water if you look at what their leaders say why they're doing this which is to resist israel until israel is destroyed mm -hmm. so you know this this intention part is left out of media yeah so that brings up another question and i i do i do want to get back to sort of the things that are actually happening on the ground at some point but maybe we could just jam on these sort of bigger questions that maybe no one really has the answer to. Um, one thing that I kind that I suspect um, is that as at, at least Hamas, I, I'll say first, Hamas cares more about hurting Israel than they do about protecting their own people. Do you think there's truth in that statement? Absolutely. And, and, and they've, to the point where they, they, they say these things, they actually are, are literal in saying that, you know, our, we see our civilians, our children, our women as, as martyrs. There are some unfortunate quotes that you could find wow. where they say that basically the, the purpose of our people is to serve as human shields and martyrs. And would you say uh, the same thing applies to um, the Fatah? Yes, I would, actually. And um, it, it's the forms are different, right? So we know that Gaza hides their rocket arsenals in, in civilian areas. That's, you know, we were familiar with that accusation and the truth. So the kinds of things that, that Fatah, the PLO, does on the ground, they'll organize what they call protests, which sometimes take the form of actual protests that we would understand as protests. You know, you have signs, you march. Uh, but often they, they're organized in such a way that they become riots. So they'll, they'll be protesting and they'll be sent, they'll be going to let's say some security fence that separates like an Israeli community from, from our community. They'll have people with cameras there, you know, their iPhones, they'll, they'll make it into like an incident where the Israelis, the IDF has to sort of step in and say, where are you going here? This is a private area. But according, you know, when it's sent out to the, to map to the masses, people don't know what's going on. They just see soldiers pushing children away, you know? So this is all, this is actually all organized by the PA. This isn't just sort of um, um, grassroots activism. So they actually, there's a resistance committee among the PA where they actually have people who establish these protests or riots. Another thing they do is they incentivize um, bombers, shooters, attackers, stabbers with what they call a martyrs fund, where they give out uh, lifelong stipends to people who attack Israeli Jews and their families. So even if an attacker is killed in the, in the process of trying to stab an Israeli, they know that their family will be taken care of with a lifetime pension. 
Mm -hmm. So this, this has gotten a little bit of media coverage here. It's called the Taylor Force Act. It was passed by Congress to, to restrict money going to the PA if they, you know, at least go into that effort. Uh-huh. Wow. You know, it's, it's really terrible when, you know, a government views their people in that way. Um, well, some of the people, and this is also the problem, maybe we could shift mm -hmm. to this. It's, you know, some of the people are very much in on it and they know, and they know, you know, they're, yes, they're being used, but they're consciously going along with it. I wouldn't say, and this is a big uh, riddle. We don't know exactly what the num how many Palestinians truly want peace with Israel and how many maybe just sort of say they do, but, but you know, they, they think their version of peace might be Israel not being Israel anymore. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I don't want to get into the business of saying Palestinians are dishonest or, you know, when you interview them, I just think they, they speak, you know, their language might be a little different than what we think is peace. Um, but just between us, I, I don't know what the number is in terms of percentage, how many Palestinians simply just want to like make peace with Israel or they want a government that does that. I would say it's a large minority. That's my guess. Um, because polls can be inaccurate the way the polls are worded. Uh -huh. But I would say that that the unfortunate nature of this, it's not simply like you just get rid of the Palestinian Authority or, or Hamas, and then peace would break out next month. Yeah. I think there has to be a bit of a revolution in Palestinian society and, and a bit of like, um, a bit of a process and an evolution. Yeah, um, I definitely want to talk about that too. I kind of want to go back to East Jerusalem yeah. a little bit, talk more about that, and then maybe kind of use that to transition into the West Bank. So, you know, I think what a lot of people are afraid of or suspicious of is that Israel wants to Judaize or move Jews into the into the East Jerusalem, create a Jewish majority there, annex it, and then, you know, keep going into the West Bank. So do you think there, there's truth behind that? Uh, yes, I do think there's truth behind it. Um, I would say that there needs to be some context to that. And this is one of those um, issues that some might say is complicated, but I think for me at least, I, I do have moral clarity on that because I understand the history of um, the Palestinian Arabs' intentions politically at least in terms of um, they don't see sharing Jerusalem as an equitable solution to the conflict. So let's say, you know, and Israel's tried to share Jerusalem. Say, so, you know what, you take the Eastern half, we'll get the Western half. And I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of these peace deals that have, that have been proposed. Uh, and Israel says, you know, you, you have control over the, the Temple Mount, our holiest site, we'll take the Jewish quarter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because they've rejected those things. And even public opinion says that, yes, Palestinians have been polled saying that they're fearful of Israeli plans on Jerusalem. But at the same time, they don't support Israel having any toehold in Jerusalem. So you see there's a little bit of this confusion here about opinions. So yeah. on one hand, they say, yeah, look at what Israel's doing. They're, they're kind of taking over Jerusalem and, and adding Jews there. But on the other hand, a lot of these people, I don't know what the overlap is, say, we don't think they have any rights in Jerusalem. And even sharing it, we don't want. So I, it's hard for me to sort of um, internalize and accept Palestinian fears and concerns when they're not really willing to meet Jews halfway on something like Jerusalem. Um, I will say also that I don't think that the claims for Jerusalem are totally um, even. I, I just, I mean, it's also, it's not a scientific calculation. I, you know, it's hard to really come up with a formula, but just based on history, based on the connections of the people to that city, I do think that Jews have um, an exclusive political claim to the city. That doesn't mean I think that Arabs and Muslims should not have rights in the city. Um, you know, uh, civil rights, of course, like freedom of, of access and religion. Um, I, but I, and I would support a political solution that gives Palestinians 
actual physical political control if that would end the conflict. So unfortunately, I don't think that would end the conflict. So I'm not interested in sort of playing that game. Uh, so the, what, should I just mention the West Bank briefly because it's sort of an adjunct to Jerusalem? Um, uh, also, I, I have one other quick question for you about um, East Jerusalem. So one of the things that I find very concerning about um, Israel's control over Palestinians in East Jerusalem is that the Palestinians there aren't able to participate in elections in the West Bank, but they're also not allowed to participate in elections in Israel. So they thus have zero political representation, which you know to me is, is very concerning. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, so the status, I'll just start with the simple fact that um, the Arab residents of Jerusalem have um, uh, Israeli residency, sort of like having like a permanent residency, but they don't have, um, most of them have not actually applied for citizenship. And so when I say they haven't applied, which is, um, which is to say that they actually have the right to apply. And for political reasons, most of them, and this is since 1967 when Israel took over um, Jerusalem, the United Jerusalem, they basically said that Arabs can apply for citizenship who live there. And most of them didn't, and they didn't because it was a protest against Israeli control or Jewish control. Um, sort of by accepting Israeli citizenship, you're sort of admitting that Israel is like legitimate. And so Do you they, know how much, what percentage of those applications for a citizenship get accepted? That's a good question. I think recently there's been more, um, initially there was just virtually no applications. I, I don't know, I don't have the numbers. That, that is a good question. Um, in the last few decades, since the PA took over, since Oslo, the applications have become more common. And I think that there are some Israeli um, um, restrictions or hurdles to like, get, you know, they need to prove, for instance, that, you know, um, they're not going to use it for terrorism or extremist activities. They have to check into the family, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but there, the applications have been also approved at a, at a higher rate recently. I don't know. I don't know the numbers, um, but uh, you know, just in short, it's it's because they haven't exercised those rights. The Arabs there. Okay. I will say about the PA elections, um, that's that represents a very tiny percentage of the Arabs who live in East Jerusalem. It's simply part of the Oslo Accords that was written in there that said. The PA, until a final status is approved, final status agreement, and the, the Oslo wasn't final, everything was temporary. So they said until a final status agreement's ironed out, the PA does not have political capital in the city, right? They can't establish like, um, you know, their own legislature or other things in Jerusalem. It's going to be Israel for now until an agreement. So that means also voting. Like if there are Arabs who, who you know, or live in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, um, they're in this sort of limbo status where they have like Israeli residency but they're also given the right to choose like PA leaders. So it's this odd sort of setup. Um, and Israel just announcing they could go to like a few miles away. There's like different, you know, um, places where they can submit their ballots. Um, but because of Oslo, they didn't want it to be in Jerusalem. So that's really the reason, the, pre the pretext that Mahmoud Abbas canceled the elections recently. I mean, even, even, even very critical of, of Israel media said it was like a pretext. Like, oh, he's just like, he knows that Hamas is going to win. So he's going to pretend it's this Israeli restriction that's holding it up. So is, is kind of what I'm hearing is that you that issue is kind of overblown? Yes. Okay. A very small percentage of Arabs are. But I will say this, because there, there are some concerns, you know, even uh, people who say they support Israel are concerned about um, settlements in East Jerusalem. That's not just in Sheikh Jarrah or right around the old city. When Israel um, 
united Jerusalem in 67 and they won the war. They got, they, you know, they, they entered that land, Jerusalem and the West Bank. They, Jerusalem was a very small city. It was really just a few neighborhoods outside of the old city. And that's not big. So Jerusalem, the municipal boundaries were expanded by the Israeli government. Yes, it was, this was not recognized by the world, but Israel rightly said, we are no, we're not waiting for the world to grant us leg legitimacy over expanding Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital, right? So they went ahead and they expanded the boundaries and they built also new neighborhoods. It wasn't exclusively Jewish. I mean, Arabs did, did legally have the right to purchase land in some of these neighborhoods and, and they have. So like Har Homa um, is one, you know, um, Givatzev, you know, different, uh, you know, um, you heard about some of these more exclusive upscale neighborhoods that have been built since the Six Day War. I would, you know, some people call them settlements. Israelis don't. Yes, Israelis do refer to like Jewish towns in the West Bank as settlements, but not in Jerusalem. Okay. And even Bibi has said this. He said, look, American President X, we're not, don't criticize us over building homes in Jerusalem. This is our capital, right? And these are neighborhoods that are going to remain within Israel in any conceivable, uh, conceivable peace agreement. And I also, my heart just breaks whenever I hear the media saying that Israel is building new settlements in Jerusalem. I'm like, well, they're just building like apartment units in an existing Jewish neighborhood that would be within Israel in any peace agreement, you know, hypothetical peace agreement. So this is not, this is not going to violate the two-state solution or the, the spirit of the two-state solution. Mm -hmm. um, East Jerusalem Arabs are free to purchase land in, in West Jerusalem. They do, actually. Um, they're free to build their own homes. I know sometimes they're, they say they're not able to get permits, building permits. Um, some of them don't apply. You know, we don't have to get dragged down into the weeds of, like, building issues. But um, I would say it's unfairly reported. Okay. And, it's, and the idea that it's, I would say, yes, there are Jewish orgs that are looking to have more Jews living in, in these areas of East Jerusalem. Some of them are Arabs, some of them are more Jewish. But I would say, let's focus on the Arab areas. Arabs are not being evicted to do this, right? So you could say, what about this case here? There are cases where, yeah, there are Arab tenants who don't own these homes. And yes, there are Jewish settler orgs that are looking to, to take advantage of this and say, look, these are, you know, we want to purchase these lands. But Arabs are not being forced to sell properties. There, aren't, there's, there isn't like intimidation going on where you see Jewish settler orgs you know, bullying Arab owners to say, you better sell me this property or else. So Arabs are not being bullied out of Jerusalem. And that's sort of the, the ethnic cleansing claim you're seeing, that, that Jabs are being ethnically cleansed from Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, which is nonsense. There are uh, close to 3,000 Arabs in Sheikh Jarrah. They're, they're not being evicted in mass. This is, you know, just these families. Okay, so, so while you, so while there are evictions that are, at least being like considered by the Supreme Court, it's, it's a minority, is what you're saying? It's a very small percentage. Okay. Um, so maybe, you know, we can, since the West Bank came up, we can talk about that. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess the big question is, does Israel want to annex the, the West Bank? So uh, very few Israelis want to annex the entire West Bank. Uh -huh. and, and sort of if you do like a, um, could do a chart or a bar graph to say, you know, what is... The more, the more religious you are in Israel, probably the more land you'd want to, Israel to annex of the West Bank. I would say most mainstream Israelis, even Israelis who identify as center-left, do not um, think it's moral for Israel to be forced to give up the five main settlement blocks. Um, so some of these areas are, most of these areas are right around Jerusalem, or at least where the, you know, the Green Line is a term that connotes the ceasefire line from the 1949 war. So whenever Israel, let's say, builds homes east of the Green Line, you know, that's considered they're building it in Palestinian territory, according to, let's say, critical media. But these areas, again, would, would stay within Israel in any peace agreement. You know, Israel is going to, at, at some points, annex these mainstream Israeli areas. Like, let's take Maladumim, which is a, a, neighbor, a big neighborhood just east of, of Jerusalem. 
It's got Arabs. It's actually got Israeli Arabs living there. Not a few. Um, it's not especially religious. Uh, and I was there when I was in Israel. It's it's just it looks like a normal Israeli town. Doesn't have that like cliched feeling of a settlement where you have like guard towers or anything. It's it's sort of a, a normal suburb of Jerusalem. Um, so those areas, there's like a consensus in Israel that they're not hotspots. They're not immoral. Israel should not be pressured over them. The problem is when you and, and most of these areas are again within a mile or two of the ceasefire, the Green Line, mm-hmm. and uh, or Israel security fence. That's Security fence roughly covers where the Green Line is. There are parts where it juts further into the West Bank and sometimes further into Israel because they're looking to take over or at least, yes, to annex um, Israeli Israeli towns. Um, the problem is there are some far-flung outposts, as they're called, that are way beyond the security fence and that Israelis, uh, the more radical Israeli Jews, build on their own. Uh-huh. At times, they've gotten some approval from Israeli government, you know, like they get sort of hookups to the water system, things like that. Uh, there are times where the Israeli government has played a cat and mouse game, where they say, this is unauthorized, we're tearing it down. There's, a, there's one town called Amona, which is for decades, it's been this cat and mouse where the Israeli government tears down these, these caravans that Jews build, and then the Jews come back and build them a few months later, or wow. a few weeks later. So it's, it's, Israel actually enforces the law against the Jews, these radical Jews. It says you cannot just set up homes here. This has to be approved. Okay. But I'll just say the bottom line with the settlements. Since the Oslo Accords were signed in, in 1993, which, again, they, they actually didn't say anything about restricting settlements. Um, that's n- nowhere prohibited, prohibited in the Oslo Accords. Um, Israel has not built any new settlement towns, right? They've built buildings within settlement communities now, and sometimes they have expanded those municipal boundaries. But overall, um, the idea that Israel has moved further into the West Bank or Palestinian territories is, is nonsense. Okay. So the basic map is still the same as it was 25 years ago. So whenever people say, oh, well, now the two-state solution is not viable because of settlements, that's nonsense. Because, yes, the settlement population has increased, but that's not the same as settlement land. Okay. And then what, what do you make of the, the, you know, the, the claim that is held by most countries in the world and that the settlements are violations of international law? Um, that's a misreading of international law. It's, it's not like necessarily a favorite topic I had growing up. Like I'm going to be looking into the Geneva Conventions, and but I guess it, it's been because I, I wanted to know that for a fact. So um, what they cite is the Geneva Conventions, which you know in um, the late 40s there were you know post World War II they came up with these conventions or these rules on how to govern um, basically lands that were yours but also occupied land. So even even occupation sometimes you see protests occupation is a crime. That actually is inherently wrong. Occupation is a legitimate tool of statecraft at times. It could be illegal, but um, there are even rule, there is international laws for occupation. So those are the Geneva Conventions, or at least one part of them. And, and the, the citation is that a country cannot move its, its citizens or tra- they say transfer its citizens um, uh, to occupy territory. So the Israeli counterclaim would, would say one, yeah, there's a bit of a, like a, this temporary status that might be called occupation that we're that we have here, but it's not a typical occupation because this West Bank land, if you go back in history, was initially supposed to be Jewish state land, right? And so you have to go back to the League of Nations, you know, at the end of World War One, that said, well, between the river and the sea, this will be a Jewish state, and and that is actually still international law, not followed. And the other thing Israelis might say is they're not being forcibly remo- uh, moved into occupied territory. And, and they would say this was, and if you look at the notes of the Geneva Convention, the prohibition was referencing Nazi, the Nazi practice during World War II, where they would send Germans, ethnic Germans into Poland and populate or areas where they deemed to be inferior 
and say, now we're going to move Germans into Poland and Germans into Russia, and, and we're going to make that, those areas more German. And they would, you know, either forcibly move them or it's part of a, pop, you know, part of a way to, you know, it's, it's a government's plan. In this case, you have private citizens of Israel who are moving on their own to lands that either their, their grandparents actually lived before the 1948 war in cases like Gosh Etzion, which is just south of Jerusalem. And so that's actually an example of a, of a case where they were evicted by the Jordanians and the children and grandchildren went back and actually built, rebuilt their own towns that were, they were evicted from in the 48 war. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's not like the Israelis are not being forced by like a Nazi-like regime into occupied territories. And that's essentially what the international law was meant to prohibit. Okay. But I would say no to no globe. It's not, it's not illegal. Um, I think even some pro-Israel people think the optics don't look great. And they would say, oh, it's like we're taking over. But I guess that, you know, you'd have to look at a map and get into the, the details to say that's, well, it's not really the case. Um, you know, the Palestinians right now don't only have effective control over roughly 40% of the West Bank. So people might say, look, yeah, so that's, what kind of a state is that? But, but the, the point of these peace processes, if the Palestinians accept statehood, they would get most of Area C, which you don't have to get into all the details of Oslo. It's, it's the chunk of the West Bank that Israel currently controls. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there's, there's nothing a lot there. Uh, and I, I kind of also want to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the claims that Israel demolishes any, um, or not, not any, any Palestinian, uh, settlements built without a permit and that permits are only issued to like 2% of people that apply, um, is, is there truth to that, or do you are there facts that well, aren't being yeah. stated? Or there is there is truth that Israel demolishes Palestinian structures, but um, in terms of like ratio wise, they they demolish plenty of Israeli built or Jewish built structures too. There's different reasons. I would say the prime reason, um, or what you're primarily seeing in the media, especially in the last several years, is that there are these um, empty areas, or for the most part, empty areas in the West Bank, in what I mentioned earlier, Area C which is, is mostly um, devoid of, of any Palestinian population. I think there are maybe spread out something like 10,000 um, Palestinian Arabs, which is just, percentage-wise, is very tiny. Most Palestinians live in Area A, which is essentially like Ramallah, Jenin, Nablus, like the big cities that are run by the PA. Um, so again, back to the PA, this, this naughty PA, um, they have initiated a program where they incentivize Palestinians under their jurisdiction to move and to try to set up um, sort of makeshift towns in Area C. Now, Area C, it, it is a big swath of territory, but this was under Oslo Accords, Israel's jurisdiction in total. So um, there have even been some pros for people to say, look, Israel, why don't you give the Palestinians more breathing room, give them some, some plots in Area C, they can expand some of their land. Um, but th none of what's going on now is in working with a coordination with Israel. So these, these individuals are not even applying for work for permits. So when they say Israel wouldn't approve a permit, they're very likely right, because some of these places are either sensitive archeological areas, they're near like military ranges. I mean, we can get into an argument whether why Israel designates an area military range, but that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it is a political game that the PA is playing to take over certain areas that at least by law, they shouldn't be taking over. Now, if they wanna sound a note of peace and say, let's, let's talk in the context of peace, where we can have like a two-state solution, I think the Israeli government would be very forthcoming in saying, all right, let's talk about Area C, let's talk about building, maybe we'll, we'll you know, basically if, if the Palestinians made peace, they would have most of Area C. They okay. could build all they want. But until that happens, Israel's not going to sort of start ceding land 
to placate this political agenda from the PA, which actually gets funding from the EU. So you see some of these structures that are built illegally that have EU flags on them. EU sort of sends them solar panels, you know, water tanks, things like that to set up, to basically take over parts of Area C in the, in the hopes of building a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. Right. And could you just uh, quickly explain the difference between areas A, B, and C, please? Sure. Area A is um, the Palestinian cities in the West Bank. Um, it's, it's roughly like, I would say 20% of the West Bank or a little more. Um, and this is full Palestinian authority control, right? Palestinian authority has a civic control. They, they have, they run the courts, the police, right? They responsible for security. Area B is joint Israeli-Palestinian control in other parts. This also has some Palestinian population. So together combined, these are about 40%, 40% of the territory of the West Bank. Um, if you look at a map, it's not like a clean, like, you know, here's the top part of the West Bank is A, here's the middle part is B. It's, it's kind of mishmashed. Um, area C is about 60% and it's all Israeli control. So again, A is total Palestinian, B is, is joint, and C is total Israel. Um, and area C is where all the Israeli settlements are. And um, so, uh, again, these, the, you know, th this is a temporary status from 25 years ago that was meant to be resolved ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, but we're still here. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, then maybe let's talk about some of the um, accusations of human rights violations um, against Israel. So, you know, I... Obviously, you know, the West Bank is filled with with checkpoints that limit mobility. Gaza is, you know, totally blocked off by Israel. Well, not just Israel, but Egypt, which I didn't know until a few days ago in doing my research. Um, and I feel like that doesn't get mentioned at all, that Egypt is also actively participates in the blockade. Um, maybe let's stay at the West Bank there. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about what Israel's reasons are for the checkpoints. You know, talk realistically about the impact they have. I mean, this this definitely makes life more difficult for a lot of Palestinian people. Yeah. Um, you know, and then maybe try to come to a conclusion of whether or not you know they're necessary. I guess. So, so I guess yeah. Let, let's let's start with with the West Bank and talk about military checkpoints there. Sure. Um, so, excuse me one second. Um, yep. Yeah, so um, basically checkpoints from the West Bank into Israel um, do exist. They kind of function as normal borders, I guess you could say, between nations. So a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank do work in Israel, thousands of them. Every day they go in and out of these checkpoints, uh, which have become a lot more modern and sort of... Um, I guess you could say less cagey. Sometimes you'll see media reports where you see Palestinians, they look like they're sort of behind these like cages or, or you know, very sort of draconian lines where they're kind of sandwiched in, in with each other. Mm -hmm. Those have become rarer and rarer. So these are no more like modern terminals now that you would sort of go into any border. Um, I would say I would say the, the, the bigger hardship uh, for Palestinians is when you have checkpoints between Palestinian towns or areas inside the West Bank. Uh -huh. now, Though, now those, because, you know, I, I would say Israel, if you're from an Israeli perspective, they would say, look, of course we need checkpoints if you're coming into Israel, because there are many Palestinians who would like to, you know, do bad things and, and blow up a, a cafe if they could in Israel, and we need to check, you know, there's security checks. 
like you go to the airport. So, so with the checkpoints inside the West Bank, they are few. I don't know currently how many there are, but it, they're generally coming down, they're going up and coming down very frequently. So it's like if there are security concerns, if the IDF in the West Bank um, sees a ticking bomb, as they call it, some Palestinian going from one town to another who's part of a terrorist group, they might set up a, what they call a flying checkpoint. There are a few like actual like more permanent checkpoints because like I mentioned, there's a mishmash of Israeli controlled and Palestinian controlled areas in the West Bank. So the border, you know, isn't just simply between, between the West Bank and Israel, it's some parts within the West Bank. Mm -hmm. But overall, you know, you might hear complaints about Palestinians having a circuitous route to get between cities here and there because of the checkpoints. And that is true. But in general, I'll just say that that checkpoints come down when terrorism goes down. Okay. When terrorism is up, checkpoints go up. Okay. Uh, we've kind of been on, on the West Bank for a while, and I definitely want to make sure we talk about Gaza because, you know, I, I think that's, well, you know, when, when people see all those horrible images of the destruction, you know, that's, that's all Gaza. Um, and I would say that's where the bulk of my concerns about Israel's behavior land. Um, so what I, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to frame the question the best, I, I guess we'll, let's, we'll start broad and focus in. Um, so Gaza is, it's one of the most impoverished areas in the world. How much of that poverty is the result of Israeli blockades? How much is the result of Egyptian blockades? And how much is the result of Hamas itself within the territory, in your opinion? Sure. And just to give a breezy history, because I don't want to, you know, Gaza's got Please. a long history. It's a very, like, you know, it's a very, it's actually an ancient city, Gaza. You know, it's, it used to be a city state. But just before Israel took over in 67, in the Six-Day War, when Egypt was running Gaza, and before that, Gaza was, was always very impoverished. I, don't, I can't go into all the reasons, um, but you know, Gaza has been known to export you know, produce and other things even before Israel took over. So it's not like there's no economy. When Israel took over, um, there were, Israel did have settlers in Gaza starting in the early 70s. As they said, primarily for security reasons, these settlers were, of course, were, were fundamentalists. They were, were religious inspired, but at least the Israeli government put them in place sort of to act as a buffer in case Egypt invades from the Sinai Peninsula, because that's mm -hmm. where Gaza is located between like the Sinai and, and Israel. Um, those settlers actually did have tens of thousands of, of Gazans um, working in their towns, working in produce industries, greenhouses. You might have heard that this big greenhouse industry that Israel um, basically had donors gift to Gazans when Israel pulled out in 2005. So, um, and you know, so it might sound like a pro-Israel talking point to say that it could have been like the Singapore of the Middle East, if not for Hamas. So let's get to that. So Israel pulls, pulls out in 2005. Now this was sort of a, just a, it was some, you know, it's, it was for peace, but Israelis had no illusion that they would get automatic peace. Um, they, you know, there was already 12 years into the Oslo process, and most of Israel knew that that there was no peace partner to be had. Mm -hmm. But Israel felt that we can't have our troops on the ground protecting these these nine settlements in Gaza, with like you know um, 9,000 Jews surrounded by. There were a lot of terrorist groups in Gaza. The Hamas was was ascendant. And it, they thought it didn't make strategic sense to commit our, our, our blood, Israeli blood, to protect those settlements. 
Um, and also the Gaza is a flat area. It's not like having, let's say, settlements in the West Bank. West Bank is a very raised plateau that overlooks Israel. So if Israel leaves the West Bank tomorrow, it's going to be a huge security nightmare, right? You're going to have, basically it's a cliff overlooking Israel. Mm -hmm. So they can just shoot rockets, you know, into Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Gaza is a little more removed. It's, it's, you know, a lot more miles away from population centers for the most part, even though there are Israeli towns near there. So when Israel pulled out, it was, it was a bit of a strategic move. Um, and it was called unilateralism, unilateralism at the time, or, or um, uh, what they called was, um, oh gee, I'll think of it in a second, but essentially it was, um, uh, it was a way for Israel to basically consolidate its, its military a little bit and to be more strategic. And Israel said, well, look, we don't have a partner, but we have to separate from the Palestinians. That was the logic. Uh -huh. So Israel pulled out. Um, they did actually try to work with the PA. PA rejected it. Um, and because, you know, again, the PA didn't want to come across like they were being handed Gaza uh, because they would, they would be seen as traitors. Um, and so, but the PA was on the ground, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, they had been on the ground along with Hamas sort of like fighting for, for, for years since the Oslo Accords. So when Israel pulled out, the PA took over. And that was, at the time, um, Mahmoud Abbas's party still is. Um, but when Israel pulled out, there was a big security vacuum. So even though the PA was on the ground, Hamas actually shot rockets and mortars even more when Israel pulled out. This was before the blockade was in place. Um, blockade actually came into place in, um, in 2007 when Israel, when Hamas fully took over. So just to get us up to speed, pull, Israel pulls out in 05, 06. The U.S. Uh, under w, w. Bush calls for elections. They thought that everyone in the Middle East would want democracy. Apparently not everyone. Um, Hamas didn't want it. But uh, they called for elections anyway. Hamas won the elections. Um, the Fatah party didn't want to give power over to Hamas in Gaza, uh, where they won. So they actually, um, Hamas staged a coup and kicked Fatah out, essentially. Um, they, they actually drove them to the border. You know, Fatah had to go to the border. They had to leave. Um, and then that's where Hamas took over in 2007, a year after the elections. As soon as Hamas took, took over, there were demands made of Hamas. They said, you must recognize previous agreements with Israel, like the Oslo Accords, you have to respect mm. these agreements. Uh, you don't have to, doesn't mean you have to make a final peace with Israel, but at least you have to coordinate things with Israel. We have a border here, right? So there's gotta be some level of talk. Um, and the other uh, condition was, um, do not attack Israel, right? That's it. So right away, Hamas shot mortars, which are sort of like smaller, like rocket propelled things at uh, the border crossings. There are, there are three border crossings into it out of Gaza between Israel. And so Israel had to close the borders. They said, we can't operate a border if you're actually shooting at it. And so that's when they put the blockade in place. Because you know, so I'm saying this because the accusation you hear is that Palestinian or Gazan attacks are a response to the despair that's brought on by the, the blockade. But the blockade was put in place after the rocket attacks and the mortar attacks on the border. So there's a cause and effect that's flipped. Mm. Um, so this is also explains the restrictions in, in Gaza. So it's not completely blockaded. It's a partial blockade. It's a, it's a naval blockade. You're always going to have a border with with checks um, from the Israeli security. That's been that's been the same. What you what you now have is that the Israeli Navy is is not letting ships just simply come into Gaza because those ships could bring Iranian missiles, you know, Iran funds and, and arms Hamas. So Israel's very clear on that. And even the UN, which is not pro-Israel at all, said that the blockade is legal. Um, so you know, there we can we can empathize with with ordinary Gazans for having difficult lives. At the same time, it's, it's unfortunately, you can't have a functioning economy in a society when you have a government committed to holy war against your neighbor. Mm. It's not, you can't really have things running smoothly. So, so I think where you're landing is that the despair in Gaza is caused primarily by Hamas. 
Yes, it really is. I, I don't know what percentage of Gazans would want, you know, if not peace with Israel, then at least like quiet with Israel. And I think, you know, Israel has really um, worked with Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza in the way that Israel saying, you don't need to make a full peace with us, but if you keep things quiet, we can still have a status quo that is viable and productive, meaning we could have a functioning border, we could have economy, we could have commerce. And even with Gaza, you know, Israel, this is, goes unmentioned, Israel helps export, Gazans export their produce to Europe and to other places around the world. Gaza is a big furniture exporter. So it's not like the, the economy has been completely stifled. Of course, it's, it, it is limited, but Israel actually assists and facilitates, you know, Gazan exports for their economy. And so, you know, the fact that they do that already, you know, it, it would show, imagine if there was quiet from Gaza and there isn't attacks, there would be a full-blown Gazan economy. Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, there are luxury malls in Gaza. I'm not saying that makes the, the Gazan population less impoverished. But the point is, there are features of Gaza that don't make it some sort of like prison camp. You know, it's, it's got um, a lot of functioning aspects to it. You know, okay, so maybe um, I'll use that to transition to the, the claim that Gaza is an open air prison. Is, do you feel like there's truth to, to that? No, I know. Um, because... It, it might seem that way, I guess, to some people who look at it at a map and see how small Gaza is. Like it's this little tiny finger that's adjacent to Israel. And so it might seem like, wow, it's, it's sort of this like tiny little like, you know, area that's like fenced off. But, you know, there, it's, it's a border fence. So you, if you have small countries and, you know, not every country has a, has a fence as a border, you know, some, some have open borders. In this case, you have um, a hostile entity governing that territory. You're going to have a border fence. So, you know, they present it as it's sort of like this, this imprisoned population. Um, and no, it's not. It, it's, it's simply like there are restrictions from the Egyptian side as well. And Gaza actually can be even more expanded. Some people say it's the smallest, most densely populated area. It's not the most densely populated area, but we don't have to get into rankings and, and a con it doesn't have to be a contest. It, it is. It, it is a very densely populated, populated area still. But with, all, with some of these recent peace deals, there's been discussion about expanding it to the south and into, into Sinai to make it a little more robust of a place and connecting, connecting to the West Bank. Again, I'm, I'm very pi I'm pie in the sky. I still hope one day we can have a two-state solution mm -hmm. and I would have fun with these maps, but we're not anywhere close to that. Yeah, I just, I wanna talk a little bit more about the claim that it's an open air prison. So it, it, it is true, is it not, that for in the most part people, or at least, Gazans living in Gaza are not allowed in and out of the territories. Is that correct? Um, they are. It's very limited. So yeah. the problem is that they, because of security considerations, a lot of Hamas, and this has been proven, um, exploit humanitarian cases where let's say there are, and Gazans leave Gaza actually every day. I mean, there are, there are businessmen, there are humanitarian cases, there are medical cases where Gazans go to get treatment in Israeli hospitals, right? They actually have business contacts in Israel. So the idea that the border is completely shut is, is nonsense. I mean, yes, it has to be checked with Israel. You can't simply walk through a border. Um, the problem is there have been cases where Hamas will exploit some humanitarian consideration, or humanitarian case where they'll, they'll give a packet to send to their Hamas operative in the West Bank or somewhere in Israel. Um, or and there have been sad, very sad cases where they've actually given explosive belts to Gazans who are going for cancer treatment in hospitals. This hasn't happened in many years. Wow. Um, so this, this is it. I mean, this is like what Israel has to put up with, that there are delays. Sometimes you might hear a heart-tugging story of like, let's say, a, a Gazan PhD candidate who's like going to a school in Germany or something where they might be delayed going to their school or Israel might say, you know, hold up, you know, we got to, but 
ultimately they do go. It's just that it's not easy to, yeah, it's not easy just to travel to and fro Gaza. But every day there are, there are many people who leave Gaza. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's not like a prison, like they can't get out. Gazans actually do want to immigrate um, to, to other places. They want to get out. They don't, this is also one of these battles between how many Palestinians really like this war that's being waged against Israel. I think there are lots who want to get away from it. Uh -huh. um, I don't think they're allowed to immigrate from Hamas, uh, but I don't, I don't know again what the mechanics are of Hamas preventing emigres. Okay, so I, I, um, I guess I just, just to sort of clarify your point is what you're kind of primarily saying that is that the, you know, the, the very high level of security that Israel imposes is necessary because of terrorist activity from Gaza or from Hamas specifically? Or, or, right, and Hamas um, exploiting uh, civilian cases to like pass on information to Hamas mm -hmm. operatives or to exploit individuals themselves, um, make them like sort of human bombs. But yeah, there's always security considerations that Israel's uh -huh. defense whenever they approve permits. But Israel does grant permits, you know, health permits, exit permits to Gazans for various reasons. Um, it's not that it's completely shut, but it is limited. You know, I, I don't want to get into a debate over, over numbers. I'll just, from what I've read, it looks to me like those um, permits are fairly limited. Um, but it, I mean, again, you know, when you... I think I think in times like this, they are definitely okay. when there's quiet. I, I think there's much more of a flow of Gazans into and out of Israel. Oh. Like there's sort of this demarcation on the timeline. There's certain demarcations. One, the big one is since 1993, mm -hmm. because that's when Israel basically gave Palestinians self-rule. So that was in that was also in Gaza, even though there are settlements in Gaza and Israel was there. It was the PA that was running the show. Right. They ran the courts, the police. Um, the, the educational system, the media, they had, they did have these powers, right? Um, yeah. And they did have security control. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead, you were going to say. Oh, no, I was just saying, oh. one thing I kind of wanted to touch on briefly is, you know, I, I think it's very easy as an American to look at the destruction in Gaza and feel heartbroken. And it, it is very heartbreaking to see that amount of devastation. And, you know, to, to look at the number of deaths and injuries on each side and to kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, Israel is in the wrong just based on amount of destruction, amount of live, lives lost, amount of damage. But I, it, one thing that's probably impossible to think about unless you're actually living it is what life is like with. I mean, l literal terrorist organizations at your border that have publicly stated they want you to be destroyed. So stated and actually carrying it out. Yeah. I mean, it's even though, and I would just say, even though I, I think it's hard for some to to digest because Israel is a very powerful military mm -hmm. and it's much stronger in terms of its economy, its infrastructure than than West Bank or Gazan Palestinians. So people like might say, yeah, it's very unfortunate that that Israeli shouldn't be targeted, but still. You know, Israel has more power, thus, you know, fill in the blank. Like, it's still Israel's responsibility. Mm. And this can't, This has come up recently with, like, Trevor Noah, John Oliver had these spiels on their shows about, like, that That there's a power imbalance. I don't know if you had a chance to get one. Yeah, I, I have seen those. And I, I admit, I, I am sympathetic to the claim that, you know, when... Here's 
so I, I am sympathetic to the claim that when there is such a power imbalance, it is beholden upon you to... More responsibility for the powerful. Exactly. However, I also feel like... Um, so we, we know what happens when Israel has power and Palestine doesn't. Every once in a while, there's a lot of destruction in Palestine, and it's, you know, it's extremely unfortunate. I think, and I, you know, obviously I can't prove it, but if the military powers were switched and Palestine had military superiority, there wouldn't be an Israel. So while, yes, maybe Israel is a little overzealous with their power at times, I think they use it a lot more um, with a lot more restraint than, than Palestine and especially Hamas would. Yeah, so, yeah, I would just disagree and say that actually Israel um, uses tremendous restraint, even to the point of pissing off its own citizens. Like, for instance, with, with these rockets that have been flying from Gaza with such frequency since, like, I would say 16, 17 years ago, you've had re Israeli residents near Gaza that have complained to the government to say, what are you going to do about this? Like, we can't running to bomb shelters. We can't have our, our, our kids in school getting disrupted with, with air raid sirens. So there's this controversy within Israel about the government actually not acting enough on Gaza. Yes, every every several years there's like some operation where Israel sends troops into Gaza, there are like there are bombings and things like that. But you know Israel's in an impossible situation where you know Israel cannot physically be on the ground in Gaza you know, grabbing rocket launchers out of the hands of Hamas terrorists. Yeah. So there's no like perfect solution to it. But the point is, Israel actually is like, you know, doesn't want to get blamed also globally. They factor that in. Of course, it's mm -hmm. not the number one factor. Um, but Israel shows restraint on a lot of things, even with this latest conflict. I mean, there were some security restrictions Israelis put up outside um, the old city. That was supposedly one of the sparks to the Arab riots. Like it was outside Damascus Gate. There was Israel barred a certain number of Arabs from being there post um, prayers. And, and Arabs, you know, the Palestinians said, oh, that's, that's it. We're, we're, we're we going to riot now against Israel because they're restricting our, our freedom of prayer. And actually, that wasn't the reason at all, because Israel had word that there was going to be riots, and they, they had to try to prevent them by limiting the number of people there. But Israel, after a few days, they said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to take the restrictions away, we're, we're, you know. And that, that was actually, that was, so that was restraint, that was a concession, and the Palestinian um, powers that be exploited that to say, look how weak the Israelis are. We just keep rioting and they're gonna keep taking down barriers. Mm -hmm. So it, it tends to backfire. Um, this, again, a lot of restraint where, look at the court case in Sheikh Jarrah. It's been going on for 40 years. These people are in protected tenant status. They're not being evicted. Um, and it's, and it's, being, it's you know, being dragged through the Israeli courts, which has cost Israel time and money. But this is also, this is such, this is what happens. Like these things, there's a process to them. And there is a level of fairness. Some people not, might not like that level of fairness, but it's not just like, oh, you know, Jews in, Arabs out. Like, that's not how it is. There, there is law. There are laws. There, there is morality. So I would just say this also. There's intentions matter. And key to some of the, the John Oliver and the Trevor Noah stuff, the, uh, where they blamed Israel for the, having too much power, I think Trevor Noah literally said, uh, put, put intentions aside. And then he focused on, like, the casualty numbers or the power. Mm -hmm. I said, you can't put intentions aside. It, it really doesn't matter how much power the Palestinians don't have. Um, you know, Israel can't use its military to force the Palestinians to make peace, right? And that's what we all want. We all want a two-state reality or a two-society reality. Um, and Israel, it doesn't matter how much power Israel has. It can't use that power to convince the Palestinians. So what's going on in the Palestinian mind 
is actually it's more important than than what they what their arms level are or mm -hmm. what their power level is and people yeah, don't I want to make sure that we get to uh, a few more questions. Um, I know I want to be I'll just, think, I'll just follow up with the power thing. Palestinians have been have exploited power. They, they've been given power through the Oslo Accords. Um, and the fact that they even got to the Oslo Accords was terrorism, right? They, they convinced the world to say, look, we're going to bomb capitals around the world until we get our freedom. And then they changed the story to like, yeah, well, freedom could be like, um, you know, some land. And we'll, we'll, we'll make peace with Israel. And they were given, you know, our, Israel actually funded you know, the PA government, they still do, they still do. The PA, uh, the PLO was given weapons, you know, to police their cities. They were given the airwaves of media channels that Israel had to like siphon off and give to them. They were given tremendous investment by the world. And we're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign investment. And what they've done, and they've given, and they were given land, which is what the claim is, right? Why not, is, why doesn't Israel give them land? They were given all this land and with promises of more land. And they exploited this and they, and they basically, use that power for bad things, right, to attack Israelis. So the notion that Israelis don't show restraint and Palestinians don't have power is, is completely wrong. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So <laughs> um, okay. So. Um, a lot of time. We've already been talking for close to 90 minutes. And we. Yeah. I just, I we want... talked about American Jews and why, uh, what are their, what's their take on this? Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I, I know you're you're recovering from a surgery. Um, you know, what's your. I, I could be on for as long as you need, but whatever okay. would help you. Okay, great. Um, all right. So one of the one of the things I wanted to make sure we, we talk about is, um, so I believe this was last year, the Human Rights Watch um, put out a report declaring that Israel was an apartheid state. Right. Um, what is your take on this? Um, I mean, it's Human Rights Watch has what's called the, the halo effect is that there's a human quote unquote human rights organization that actually does some good work in various spots around the world where it's maybe less political. But in case of Israel, you have, you know, people who have a political um, bias against Israel who, who work for that Mideast department. So I would say it's a biased organization when it comes to Israel and, and even with some of the statements from their staff. Their staff. Um, I would also say, so they, they just now issued this report saying Israel's crossed this threshold as they claim. Mm -hmm. I would respond by saying the status on the ground and the actual mechanics of what goes on on the ground has essentially been the same for 25 years. You know, yeah, there might be some differences here and there, perhaps checkpoints go up there or they go up there, but the whole level of control, like I mentioned with Oslo and, and Israel's, as it's called Israel's matrix of control has essentially been the same. So the fact that they're just saying this now is not based on any new action by the Israeli government or how many more like settlements have been built. Like I said, new settlements have not been built. Yes, there's a, a growing Israeli population within existing settlements, but that's not taking over more Arab land, Palestinian land. So what's changed is the political environment, that the conflict has shifted. For 20, year, 20 years ago, there was a UN conference um, that was about like racism in Durban, South Africa. I'm giving you the very short, short of like the history of BDS and the apartheid analogy, but essentially there were, there were NGOs, non-government organizations, of which human rights is, is one of many, that came up with a strategy to shift the conflict from uh, a transnational conflict, like Arab states against Israel, as it used to be back in the day, to like a human rights-based or civil rights-based conflict. So they wanted to make it that like Israel was denying civil rights to Arabs. And they thought this would be more, that would increase the relatability factor to the global population, especially in the West. 
because it's hard for Americans to understand like this transnational, Americans don't have their borders being invaded by armies, you know? Mm -hmm. if you should, but Americans understand the concept of civil rights and rights, right? So that's when the conflict, it was called the Durban Conference in 2001, it was just before 9-11 actually, where these anti-Israel NGOs um, came up with a strategy, the apartheid analogy. So we're gonna call Israel an apartheid state, we're gonna say it's guilty of the crime of apartheid. Since then it's been a drip drip kind of strategy of pushing this in, through the media, through academia. The Human Rights Watch world, um, or the, the human rights NGO world kind of held back a little bit on this because it just, it seemed like a bridge too far to, to walk because I think a lot of people were like, yeah, we might not like Israel's control of the West Bank, but we, we wouldn't call it apartheid. Apartheid obviously, as you know, has a very strong negative connotation. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, you think it's just, it's just under Nazi in terms of like historical analogy, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, basically it's racism. It's another way to say racism. And, and so people were, you know, within Human Rights Watch probably were reluctant to just go full on with that right away. And they just wanted to give it a little time. And, and now they say that some threshold's been crossed, but essentially the same issue, the same situation on the ground has existed for 25 years, the Siazo Accords. It's politically expedient that they're saying it now, because right now what you're seeing in America is in the West is, is more of a, an awakening about racial justice, right? Okay. So, so maybe, see, maybe let's, let's just take aside um, aesthetics of it take away political environment and maybe let's let's take away the word apartheid since it, it is so uh it's it has so many connotations around it um do you think there is truth to the statement that the palestinian people have been disenfranchised by israel and that israel has worked to push for a Jewish majority and not just Israel proper, but East Jerusalem and the West Bank as well, and have done so by limiting the rights of Palestinian people? So, you know, framing and language is, is key. So let's talk about this, the, de the de demographics um, discussion, because that I mm -hmm. think that tends to also creep even supporters of Israel out, the idea of like, Engineering demographics is a scary kind of concept and it conjures up images of like the Nazis or others, right? Where yeah. you know, they want like more of their own. So what I would start with is these are two very distinct societies going back more than a hundred years. That yeah, Jews made up a very you know tiny percentage of, of the, that land up until modern Zionism in the late 19th century. But essentially, you know, we'll start with where the British took over. And I'm just gonna give an extremely breezy history, but it's important to know that. Um, from when the British took over, which is like World War I, 1920, they put their sort of like occupation on the ground, the British. Palestinian politics has, has basically, um, that was sort of when it really came to the foray as a player. Um, you know, the, the, Pal the Palestinians did have a voice. They had many, you know, they had religious clerics, other politicians speaking on their behalf. And early on, they put Palestinian people on this collision course with the Jewish society there. Um, you know, again, how many Palestinians, Arabs at the time wanted peace, we don't know, but certainly there was a lot of political pressure among Palestinian leaders that has not stopped. It's sort of an unbroken chain of Palestinian leaders exploiting their own people, using them, um, you know, in a war against the Jewish society there. So, so going back to the two society concept, um, demographics are of concern to every society, especially ethnic-based societies. And, and Israel is one of many, many ethnic-based societies around the world. Most democracies on earth you know, are basically about securing um, an ethnic, you know, sort of an ethnic identity, or at least maintaining an ethnic identity, right? We kind of take that for granted. 
You know, we take Israel some exception. It's, it's not, mm -hmm. um, even among democracies. Um, the Palestinians themselves are very much about demographics. I mean, Palestinian society, I don't know what you know, what you, how diverse you think it is, but- I, I, I don't know very much at all, to be honest. So it's 99% Arab Muslim. Mm. I used to, used to have a much more sizable Christian population, which has fled. Um, for different reasons, I would say a big reason is also Islamic uh, radicalism with the PA, within the PA. But the, my point is it's um, a very homogenous society. And the idea that they would want to destroy their own society to sort of mix with, uh, with millions of Jews, it doesn't make sense if you look at how conservative um, and religious Palestinian society is, right? It's not that they're just simply not allowed to mix with Israelis. Like there is, of course, mixing. You know, you have, and as again, that's another spooky word, mixing. But you know, the point is, there is, there are Arabs and Jews who do um, rub shoulders together, who shop together. There's, you know, mostly in Israel. But Palestinian society is very restrictive, and um, and right now it's not uh, it's not safe for Jews to be uh, to even go into Palestinian society in those cities. Why that matters is that Israel's held to a double standard in terms of the demographics, right? Israel, of course, wants to have a Jewish majority, and it should have a Jewish majority. Um, it doesn't, however, it doesn't engineer it. It doesn't sort of like say, well, Arabs in Israel can't grow their communities, or Arabs in Israel, you know, can't have more than three kids. It doesn't have those rules, right? It's, it's sort of like it's whatever people want it to be. Um, it's just Israel has faith that it's not going to be that an Arab population boom in Israel is not going to be used against Israel. In fact, the Arab, the numbers are that Jews are having more babies than Arabs in Israel. Um, now, in terms of like West Bank and settlements and those things like that, um, and in East Jerusalem or Jerusalem in general, um, you know, Jews make up a, a majority of the population of Jerusalem. Um, but Arabs are not, again, Arabs are not being elbowed out of Jerusalem. You know, they're not being bought out even. Um, and it's just about, yes, Jews want to have more, you know, a lot of organizations want more Jews to live in Jerusalem. They want to strengthen Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as a bad thing. In terms of the West Bank, um, Again, most of the areas that have Jews are very close to where Israel's ceasefire lines are, at least the green line, as people call them. Um, and that's really it. I mean, the, the air, other far-flung settlements, they're really not about taking over Palestinian land. They're not, I mean, well, among those individual settlers. But the state of Israel doesn't actually want to evict Palestinians. I mean, that, that idea is, is just lunacy, that Israel is looking to kick out Palestinians from the West Bank. I mean, there are 4 million Palestinians there. Um, they don't want, you know, they don't expect Jews are going to live in Ramallah or Jenin or Nablus. Um, and they want Palestinians to govern themselves and have their own things and have a functioning society and live with them. So the idea that, uh, you know, back to demographics, I think, what was the term you meant? Um, population struggle or? Uh, I, I, I can't recall the exact word, word that I meant, but, you know, I, I think one of the things that concerns people, and we, I think we talked about this earlier, is Israel's desire to keep Israel Jewish, right. and I'll, I'll just I'll I'll sta sit, state one of the things that you know I came across that you know kind of it, it's I think it strikes would strike a lot of Americans as very odd, but um, so the Constitution of Israel state says that the state is for the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone. Is is that correct? I want to make sure I'm not. Misrepresent. Well, Israel doesn't have a constitution. Actually, that's one of the, uh, <laughs> the debates that's always been raging in Israel. They should have a constitution. Um, they have what's called basic laws. Okay. Uh, and so I think what you might be referring to is the nation-state law that was passed several years ago uh, by the Knesset. It was put yeah. forward by Netanyahu and some people in Likud. Essentially, said Israel is the homeland uh, of the Jewish people, 
Um, and I, I forgot the exact wording, but it was paraphrasing like, and, and no other people. Um, and, and there were some, you know, details after that initial, um, you know, start or initial, um, right. Um, so what, what that was about was, you know, Israeli politics can be messy because I think there's also a lot of parties that are, that are vying for votes saying like, we're the most Zionist or we're the most pro-Israel. Uh -huh. um, so what that was about was because people don't realize that they can't look at these things in a vacuum. As we know, there is a, is a raging war about Israel's legitimacy and Zionism, right? So right now, it's, been, it's becoming more fashionable to say that Zionism is racism. Mm -hmm. And that's also, I'm going to tie that back to the apartheid thing with Human Rights Watch. They thought now is the time is ripe to hit on the whole, like, Israel's an apartheid state, which basically is saying Israel's racist, like, to its core. And they didn't just say in the West Bank. Like, the report said, even within Israel, like, pre-1967 lines is, is racist, is apartheid. Um, and, and so the nation state law basically was pushing back on this concept that, you know, this war against Zionism, this war against Jewish nationhood. And the nation state law says, look, Arabs have civil rights here. They're going to continue to have civil rights. But this, this country, this nation of Israel, is ultimately for, for Jewish collective self-determination. So Arabs have, um, you know, a civic self-determination there. Like, you know, you and I have, have self civic self-determination in America. We don't have Jewish self-determination here. Because there's, you know, Jewish collect. There's no Jewish collective that wants political like borders in America, right? Uh, we just want rights. So that wasn't taking away non-Jews' rights. It's simply just sort of stating again. I think that's the emphasis on it. It was sort of a reaffirmation that Israel, Zionist Israel, is not going anywhere. Uh huh. So some people didn't like it because, and I, I kind of had a problem with it because I thought it might have been unnecessary, and and it would be sort of misreported. But I'm not going to blame Israel for that. I mean, like, people are always going to misreport what Israeli, the Israeli Knesset puts out. But I would say that it was, a, it was sort of a necessary reaffirmation that Zionism is legitimate, that Jews have a collective right to self-determination in that land, and there's no other people that do have a, a collective self-determination. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not unique to Israel. You wouldn't say that uh, a minority, let's say um, a, um, a Serbian minority living in Bosnia, which is a Muslim majority, you wouldn't say they have, a, and there are, there are some Serbians living in Bosnia. You wouldn't say they have a collective right, um, collective rights in Bosnia. Bosnia is for, is for ethnic Bosnia, Muslim Bosnia. And mm -hmm. this goes the, the same way for a lot of countries. I think they want to preserve, you know, the, their, their culture, their heritage. And you could say the same thing for Palestinians. Again, Palestinian, the Palestinian society, they're not ready to destroy themselves. They want to maintain Islamic courts, their Islamic character, Arab colors, you know, like very Arabic, Arabic specific facets of their culture and so they would also say we don't want to uh you know disappear our society and then mix with jews and have some sort of like american-like setup yeah you know what, what i focus on the palestinians enough yeah, mm -hmm. what i think is so you know confusing to people and what really you know stokes the fires here is that they're seeing there, there's a lot of very very religious people on both sides and not just religious but very very um entrenched within their own cultures and so you know you you see uh the marches of orthodox jews in jerusalem screaming death to arabs and you see the arabs saying death to jews and there's there's just a lot of what i what i would call radical religious behavior um on both sides um i want to also make sure we talk a bit about um sort of the u.s response to all this 
um, because it seems that the the U.S. response, or at least the rhetoric, has been stronger now than it has ever before. Um, so, Bernie, rhetoric, like criticizing Israel. Yes. So. Uh, Bernie Sanders recently said that Netanyahu's administration has become more right-wing and has overt racists in his his coalition. Uh, do you think there's any truth to that? Um, I'll, 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 let me address the racists in the coalition first. Yeah, I, that, yeah I, I, I don't like that. I think that's unacceptable. Basically, he's referring to uh, this party, a small party called Yehudit Atzma, or sorry, Atzma Yehudit, uh, which has essentially, it's like a spinoff of um, the Kahanist party, uh, that, you know, Meyer Kahane was this like anti-Arab firebrand who, um, formed a party in Israel and in the 1984, he was banned by the Knesset because it was a racist party. And that party hasn't existed since. And this is sort of like, I guess, a little bit of a rehash of that party. And Netanyahu, uh, a few elections ago, I know there's elections every few minutes, a few elections ago, he like tried to incorporate this party into his coalition because he was like desperate for the seats to form like a majority. Okay. And a lot of pro-Israel people, like me included, was like, why are you doing this? Like, this is like, this, you're selling out too much to these, these people. Now, I wouldn't say all of them are racist. I, I'm not defending them, but it's like, it, I would say they're very nationalistic, but they do have, their leaders do have instigated like violence and it, it sort of trolled um, the Arab community in Israel. And it, that's unacceptable. And so, I mean, a lot of Israelis reject this party, even, even Israelis on the right. Like, like a lot of the Likud spoke out about this party being included in the coalition. Um, and I've spoken out a bit, like, about them. They said like, they should be banned from like further elections. Mm -hmm. And I would say you referenced earlier this like the um, this right wing party marching in Jerusalem. It was called the Hava. They were saying death to Arabs. Um, they were roundly condemned even by the Israeli right. They said this is unacceptable. This isn't our values. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, this was widely reported. I don't want to go back to the, what's going on in Jerusalem, but but the the narrative was commandeered to make it seem like it was like either both sides or majority Jewish when. All the street violence that's gone on in Israel sparked with Jerusalem. Actually, was one it was sparked by um, it, Arabs living in Israel or, or Jerusalem that had a, what they call the TikTok Intifada, where they um, basically recorded attacking Jews, put it on the internet, and challenged their friends to like outdo them with lights. And that's actually what, how a lot of the street violence started. And so those do those Arab guys. They actually some of them were arrested and they were early released by the Jerusalem police. The early release is what pissed off some um, Jewish Jerusalemites who unfortunately, they, some of them took to the street and chanting anti-Arab rhetoric. Um, but a lot of the marchers actually weren't supporting the rhetoric. They were like, what are you yelling? No. And they condemned them. Um, but So I'll say that. I'll say also the street violence going on. You've heard some of the street violence in cities like Lod and Haifa, um, in Jaffa, in these like mixed Arab cities they're called. Oh, sorry, mixed Israeli cities. 99%, again, not super scientific, but what I've read and what I've heard from experts 99% is Arab mobs attacking Jews, not Jewish mobs attacking Arabs. Okay. But when you read it, you read it in the media, it seems like either it's even Steven or it's like Jewish. But just to bring it back to the point about like racist and Bernie Sanders. So yeah, I think that um, Israel has gone more right wing, um, but I wouldn't slur right wing as necessarily either racist or anti-peace. I would say that, you know, when it comes to issues like security in Israel, you do have a large consensus among us. You might've heard the, the claim that the Israeli left has been completely decimated or like no longer exists. It's like the labor party, which essentially was like Rabin and Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert sort of switched to a little center left. But in short, why the Israeli left lost credibility is that they kept pushing the, the, the peace process and the concept of Israel withdrawing from land for peace. 
And throughout the 90s and 2000s, and more recently, the Palestinian leadership has, has let the Israeli public know that they're going to keep fighting Israel. And it doesn't matter if they withdraw from land, the war is going to go on. Mm -hmm. So this whole concept of like Israel withdrawing from land for peace has been discredited. And that's really what the Labour Party in Israel had run on for many elections. Um, and even throughout the, uh, the Oslo process, Israelis still kind of also elected some leaders to try for a last gasp two-state solution. You know, so they elected Ehud Barak uh, to replace Netanyahu in 98 or 99. And, and Barak ran on a platform of peace. He said, we're going to make peace. So that was Israeli saying, you know what, let's give this one more shot. But since then, you have, like, I have family in Israel. They would identify as left, right? They kind of read the New York Times of Israel, Haaretz. But even they say, look, there's no chance that the Arabs are ready to make peace. They don't, they're not big settlement supporters. But they're just like, there's this consensus in Israel, a mainstream consensus that would say to Bernie Sanders, look, it's not about the right wing in Israel. It, we don't think of it as right wing. Most Israelis don't see any solution um, through the Palestinian leadership right now. And Palestinian politics is a big problem. But people like Bernie Sanders like to focus on Israel. Israel's the problem. If only we, they had more moderate leadership to offer Palestinians a state. And that's just completely incorrect. It's not based on, on history. It completely omits, forget about ancient history, it just omits the last like 20 years of, of documented history. Okay, and then would you say that's sort of been the um, the general flavor of kind of the of political rhetoric around Israel um, in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, you're seeing all sorts of um, of ignorance on display with with criticism of Israel. We talked about the power imbalance um, concept, which just completely omits intentions and the impossible position that Israel is put in. When they have to defend their citizens. We've heard that if only Israel offered more fair deals, if only Israel wasn't dominated by, by Netanyahu. You're seeing a lot of things like the apartheid claim couched as if it's like Netanyahu's policies. They'll be like, AOC, I think, talked about Israel's an apartheid state. But then there were subsequent tweets where she said, you know, Netanyahu's apartheid policies. And, and I would actually challenge her. I'd be like, what, what policies has Netanyahu put in place that have been different than like pre-Netanyahu. Right? Mm -hmm. So Netanyahu has been in power since 2009. Before that, you had Ehud Olmert, who was a little more center-left. He's the, he's the last one who sort of had like an official offer on the table for the Palestinians for, for a state. I think, I think the accusations against Israel are based on a misunderstanding of, of how power works and how that, that may or may not create peace. And also what this right-wing idea is, that, that it, these are like Netanyahu is like this like new villain and I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons not to like Netanyahu. I mean, there are some things I really can't stand about him. But my, my comeback would be, well, tell me what, you know, tell me what policies he put in place in terms of like the Palestinians that are different than before Netanyahu. Uh -huh. And there really isn't. Like Israel would not withdraw from the West Bank unilaterally if there was some central left government in place. That's ridiculous. There are certain security needs that are so, that are so um, common sense based that it's, this isn't about Netanyahu's policies. And yeah, that's what interesting. Don't understand. Um, you know, I it it is interesting that it's sort of coming to a head now. Um, you know, I I think there's just there is so much awareness about oppression in America at the moment, and it it is so easy to look at the situation on its face and see oppressed people. Um, and I you know. I think the the Palestinians are oppressed people. I think the question is oppressed by who? 
Um, and, you know, that there, whenever there's oppressed people, there has to be someone to blame. Um, all right. One other question that I had for you. Um, and I, I don't even know how to ask this without it getting uh, way too political. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, Trump naming Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, moving the embassy there. And what was the impact of that decision? Um, first of all, do you think he was right in naming Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, um, just in a pure fact-based sense? Do you think it was right in a global economic, or a, not economics, but a global pop, um, political sense? And then, you know, what was the the impact of that? Sure, it's a good, good, good question. And we shouldn't forget, you know, Trump's Mideast legacy, because I think that um, that actually ties in with why there's a new... Um, anti-Israel energy out there because, you know, people accuse Trump of being too pro-Israel. And I think, you know, and, and Trump for, for I think, many good reasons was, was reviled. And the fact that, so people connected like, oh, Trump bad, understandably so. Mm -hmm. Trump, you know, Trump loves Israel. So that must mean Israel's really bad. So, you know, the fact that he like, he really yeah. was very pro-Israel. Very, very easy to make those connections. And then not I mean, even yeah, it was a simple, like, realize you're making them. Cause I, you know, I didn't connect those two things just now, and I have them right next to each other as notes on a Word doc I have open, and it's, it didn't hit me until you said it. Right, right. So I think I think we're seeing some of that. Um, I think it's a, it's a simple game of like you know logic algebra. We're like, oh, so and so is bad. He supports Israel. Israel bad. And you know that it, there are reasons why Republicans are maybe considered more pros right now. But I'll go into the history of this. You know, it's it's called the Jerusalem Embassy Act. It goes back to '95. Bill Clinton was in power, and it said that. No, we, we, it was passed by Congress overwhelmingly, so that the United States, um, as it recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital, so actually the recognition came with that act. Um, so Israel, the U.S. government has actually recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital um, for over 20 years, 25 years. Um, the only difference was um, there was a bit of, there was, an, there was sort of an exception clause with this act in 1995. It said the president has a, a right based on national security interests to override this act if he deemed it to be like diplomatically, um, you know, uh, unviable, which is kind of to say if there's a peace process and the president thought that it might get in the way of negotiations, he could, he could like put it on hold. But basically the act said, you know, we shall move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because it is Israel's capital. For every election, there's always, just to get like the pro-Israel vote, politicians on both sides have been like, oh, you elect me, I'm gonna move the embassy to Jerusalem. So as we know, that never happened. Mm. Um, so Trump actually campaigned on that. And a lot of pro-Israel people were like, yeah, right. Like that's been said before. Um, so surprisingly, when that actually happened, people were, were shocked. I was, I was surprised too. Um, so to answer that, I do think it's actually a really good thing. Although, you know, because Trump has his, like, his, his fingerprints on it, it, it's like, I've talked to some friends of mine who equally like what he did, but are like, kind of like, you know, creeped out that, that it's like from Trump. Yeah. So <laughs> I will say though, though that like, you know, Trump's been out of office now, you know, coming up on, I don't know, several months. And, and I think 20 years from now, yeah, people will remember, of obviously, the Trump era. But I think, I don't know if people will connect the embassy in Jerusalem to Trump all the time. It's still, mm -hmm. like, at the end of the day, it's still the U.S. government making a decision. And even though, like, a certain individual pushed that decision, it's still the bottom line. It's still the U.S. government recognizing it. 
So I think it is a good thing. It's not like Trump's embassy. You know, this is like still the U.S. making a decision. Mm -hmm. Following it through on a decision on an act that they passed by a Democratic president. So I think that it was, it was good. Um, I think that uh, what, it, what it really did, I think the effect of it was to say, I mean, this is only if you think this way about the conflict, which I think is the correct way, that the Ar Palestinian politics is still about rejecting Israel. Um, and, they're, and they're basically, um, they're about convincing the world that, or convincing themselves that if they pressure the world strong enough, Israel will, it will become weak and will like collapse in and, on, you know, in and of itself. And so this basically said to the Palestinian uh, political leaders, look, not only do we recognize Israel's not going anywhere, we're going to like recognize Jerusalem as, as Israel's capital and like deal with it, get, get used to it. And this doesn't mean that Palestinians can have their capital in, in East Jerusalem. Again, the embassy was actually moved to West Jerusalem. It wasn't even like across what many in the international community feel is like Palestinian territory. Mm -hmm. So it was in like, you know, sort of the uncontroversial part of Jerusalem. That's the irony. Okay. It, so it, it was interesting how that was never brought up in the media. Um, yeah. In fact, recognizing I, I, I wasn't even aware of that. Um, right. This was Israel from 1948 to 1967. This this land. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing how people like flipped out. But but what what people feared didn't happen. They feared, oh my God, the Palestinians are gonna are gonna revolt. There's gonna be terrorism. Um, and actually, there wasn't. But you, if you do recall, the day of the embassy opening, it was um, May 15, uh, 2018. And it was called Nakba Day. I don't even know the word Nakba. You might have heard it. Not. So Nakba is the Arabic word meaning catastrophe, which is what uh, they've used for several decades to describe Israel's birth. So it's on May 15th every year, May 15th being the day after Israel's Independence Day. And it's their recognition to say that Israel's existence or Israel's establishment was a, a, a catastrophe for us. So just to move ahead to, um, to, to three years ago, so... Hamas in Gaza planned what they called the Great Return March. Uh, you might have recalled there was like coverage of like this, what they called a protest along the fence of Gaza and Israel, where like the media was talking about like protesters being shot by Israeli forces. Yes. So, right. So that was, that was timed. That was already going on for a few months, independent of this, this embassy opening. But Hamas sort of timed the more, um, the stronger protests um, on, on this day of the embassy opening because they wanted the media around the world to report the embassy opening juxtaposed with images of so-called protesters getting shot mm -hmm. and because they wanted the world to see oh my god look at like look at what this 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 has done this is like caused you know protesters to get shot it wasn't protesters i mean these were again i don't want to go into the weeds of this operation but it was typical hamas using a civilian universal concept of a protest to embed its terrorists to break into israel and commit atrocities mm -hmm. so you had thousands of actual gazan civilians having picnics near the fence of gaza and israel and then you had Hamas operatives who were using like tire fires. They lit tires on fire to provide like coverage, um, you know, sort of like military cover for them to, to break the fence and gun into Israel to, and they were armed with knives and, and bombs. And so you had Israeli forces who were trying to prevent this hole in the fence because you would have had hundreds and hundreds of Gazans pouring into Israel. And even if you had 10% of those Gazans who were terrorists, it was going to be a nightmare, a security nightmare. So unfortunately, Israel had to shoot Gazans, like who were trying, like the terrorists. But the media reported it as Israel kills protesters. And so that dominated the headlines, going back to the Jerusalem embassy thing. This is how also news can be so engineered to be against Israel when something positive happens. So just, just a, that's just one small example, right? Like uh -huh. it, takes, it takes a thousand words, if not more, 
10,000 words to explain what I just explained about this, what Hamas was doing, you know, the mechanics of the operation, tire fires, all this stuff is like, meanwhile, how many words does it say, you know, does it take to say Israel shoots protesters? That's three words. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a it is a much and you know, a much more potent and te- attention grabbing headline. Um, and yeah, that goes it, for a lot of things. That goes for this everything going on now, right? Israel evicts protesters. It's usually three words: Israel, you know, ver- bad verb, and Palestinians. Huh. <laughs> Israel shoots so and so, right? Uh-huh. Whatever. Israel, Israel prevents uh, worshiper, or Israel, you know, uh, attacks worshippers at Al Aqsa. Mm-hmm. These are very simplistic meme type things. That, that seem complicated to people and are passed around on memes. And, and the amount of time it takes to actually explain them, most people lose interest, if, they, if they're interested at all, right? And that's the problem. Most people today in America who have taken sides are not even interested. You know, I think the, 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 the uh, sentiment now is like, if you defend Israel, you're, you're complicit in the crime. It's not complicated, they say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, occupied and occupier. Well, it's any anyone who says this isn't complicated is, is definitely wrong. There's, right. there's. Those people uh, aren't setting up ninety minute podcasts or, or two hour podcasts to get into the weeds on this thing. They, um, they're, they're very not you. So. Thanks. Um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, one of the things that so I was like, I listened to your um, discussion on um, the great debate with, um, you know, I. I can't remember the names of the two gentlemen, um, so I, yeah. I, I won't try to butcher uh, them. But I'll just I'll tell yeah. people briefly, or why don't you tell people briefly about that discussion? And just the reason I'm bringing it up is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is, you know, you're definitely you're very educated and you're very strong in your beliefs. But I, I certainly don't see you as someone who's unreasonable to listen to the other side. So um, yeah, why don't you just talk? Uh, quickly about that experience um, for anyone who's interested. And then I, I do have one other question for you. Sure. I, I also, I remember the name is uh, the Israeli yes, was Adar Weinreb. Interesting guy, American born. He made Aliyah, which is simply means to immigrate for a Jew to immigrate to Israel a few years ago. Uh, and he set up this dynamic um, uh, forum. It's on Discord, the app Discord, where it sets up conversations between Zionists and, and Palestinians or, or Arabs, or, you know, different groups. And he has frequent debates. And um, actually, I reached out to him. It was, uh, my outreach to him. I said, you know, I saw what you're doing. It seems really interesting. I'd love to have one of these debates. I think there's a lot of, there could be some common ground. Um, and I wasn't, you know, in my mind, I wasn't naive in that I didn't necessarily expect to, like, convince a Palestinian gentleman my age of, of my beliefs or to make him see the legitimacy or credibility of Zionism that I mean, that might've been sort of a, a, a bit of a goal, like a background goal, but I was just sort of, sort of to try to see him seeing a Zionist who kind of understands where he might be coming from. Um, but also to say, look, um, I, there were a couple of moments where I was like, look, I think the pressure should be on the Palestinian side for, for these reasons. Uh-huh. It, wasn't all, it wasn't all like, you know, cherry blossoms and like hugs. It was like, uh, yeah, we have some common ground, but this is where I think the blame should go. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not yelling at him. You know, I'm just, this is my view and it's based on this. Yeah. And so kind of this, the, uh, I guess this is the last question I have. Um, you know, are, are there things that the Israeli government or the Israeli military or the people do that, that you think is um, anywhere from uncalled for to 
unacceptable. Um, you know, just, so just putting yourself in the Palestinian viewpoint, are there things that you think Israel does that are, you know, are, are bad, I guess, to, to use a very basic word? Well, because you, you threw in a Palestinian viewpoint, I want to offer a disclaimer to say, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know how much Palestinians uh, try to dig into the reasons for, for certain Israeli policies or, or, their, or their condition or their, their situation. It, this is such a hard question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there, there's just, it's a very, um, like I think most, a lot of societies are tribal, like Israelis too. I think Israelis tend to have a very open debate about these things among themselves. So there is a lot of self-critique. I think in the Palestinian side, and this goes for, for the Palestinian cause, um, which is celebrated by you know, the people here or people in America. Um, I'm sorry, I would say when the Palestinian cause is celebrated by people here, I don't think there's an open mindset about like critiquing um, their narrative or thing. I think, I think they see the Palestinian cause as a critique of Israel. I don't think they, they see the Palestinian cause as something to be critiqued. So for instance, they might see the independence war in 1948 as like, oh yeah, well, the, the counter to that is the Nakba, as I just mentioned, right? It was, to the Palestinians, it was, it was a catastrophe. But if I said to them, well, have you, have you talked, have you ever criticized or maybe analyzed the, Pal the, the Nakba perspective? Maybe there's some holes in that, in that narrative. They would just, I mean, one, they would be mortified, they would be offended, they'd call me a racist, and they would say, no, what's to critique? I mean, it's, this is their point of view, you have the Israeli point of view, and this is their point of view. So you're, you don't have, and I think, let's just bring it back to the Palestinians on the ground there. I, I don't have a lot of hope that, um, that if there are Palestinians on the ground who do actually question why there are certain policies in place, I think there are actually. I don't think they have any forum for it. And this is what doesn't give me a lot of hope for peace. Mm -hmm. I think there are Palestinians who do ask these questions who, like any people, are, can be critical, you know, have critical thought. I don't think this is like, this jumps over the Palestinian mindset. I just think that they don't have a forum for that, right? They don't have a media that would allow that. They, don't, they can't write an op-ed questioning their, these policies. They can't march down the street and say, you know what, um, let's start to like, let's open up negotiations with Israel. Um, even if it's like, let's say, harsh conditions to open up those negotiations, you know, that would not happen. That's not allowed. There have been peace groups where between Palestinians and Israelis that have been tried to be held on, in Palestinian controlled territories, like at the West Bank, that this is years ago. They had to be shut down because they, they were just mass, there was mass violence against those, those meetings, those peace meetings. Mm -hmm. Just simply like families coming together, families, let's say, of victims on both sides, having like coffee. So I, this doesn't give me a lot of hope because I think there are Palestinians who do want to understand some of these things better, do want a better future. But any sort of avenue to explore that politically, and again, you need the politics. You can have a lot of Palestinians who actually want this, but if they don't have a political vehicle, and this is what I told Mohammed on, on the call, mm -hmm. uh, on, the, the, on the forum, um, on the great debate, I said, you know, it does inspire me that many Palestinians want peace, but what's completely deflating is that there's no way for them to actually carry that forward in a political, on a political platform. And you need, like, politics, like, we could all mock politics, like, politicians are horrible, but you need politics to actually make deals. You need, you need politics to, like, control land and territory and guns and money, you know, and, and without that, the Palestinians have no future because their politicians today suck and their politics is horrible. And that's, like, a truth that you don't really hear too often. Like I said, it's kind of omitted. So yeah. just getting back to, like, I would say yes. Just to answer your question, I would say that there are things that even pro-Israel people would say, oh, I can't believe that the IDF, that one guy did that. But I would say those are very isolated cases. I'm not going to say that Israelis don't make mistakes. I mean, they do, I don't even think most pro-Israel people would ever claim that. Mm. I think on a fundamental level, Israel's policies are, come from a moral place. 
and a well-thought-out place. They're not haphazardly thrown together. And they do factor in Palestinian um, humanity, that they're not about just running over Palestinians. Um, I think that there is... Um, Israeli policies, defensive policies, are based on a strict moral code. So although we can criticize like this particular incident or that particular incident, and I guess we could always say that someone, a particular individual overreacted, right? Or uh -huh. maybe he shot too quick, right? Like we could always make that analysis and I'm not gonna ever say no. I would say like the policies that are in place are not meant to run Palestinians into the ground. They come from, they do come from a moral place. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily, I would have to look deeper into that. I'm not a military analyst and I'm not a general. So it's hard for me to say that this policy is, is nonsense. Um, but I do think that, I think people should look a little more deeper into these things um, and, and not to be um, really frankly looking at Israelis as demonic because that's the only conclusion you can reach for Israel to, to do some of the things that people are claiming they're doing, to you know, ethnically cleanse, to practice apartheid. You'd have to consider Israelis and supporters like me, millions of Jews, and I'll just say this, that, that most American Jews, even though they might not be up on every little thing in Israel, they still generically support Israel, right? They still understand the, that Zionism, the existence of Israel is a valid moral thing. So when you say that Israel's ethnically cleansing or practicing apartheid, you're basically implicating and um, incriminating millions of American Jews and Jews around the world. And this is why we're seeing attacks in the streets, right? You've heard about all these attacks. Yeah, which is... You know, that's a lot terrible. of these people feel, feel validated, but they feel validated because people like AOC, like we have politicians who are saying Israelis are like Nazis. She didn't say Nazi, but she said apartheid. And honestly, it's not that much of a stretch between those two. So, you know, it, you know basically she's saying, you know, and, and the media has backed this up. So now you have Palestinian teenagers in America who feel validated saying, you know what, Jews here who support Israel, it's like Nazi, it's like Germans in 1930 who were, let's say, would have been like outwardly supporting Nazis in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Well, so this is why there's a there's sort of this like credibility in their own their internal logic, the Israel critics' logic mm -hmm. in attacking Jews. Yeah, I I don't think it takes much insight to see the irony in calling Jews Nazis. Um, you know, I will say the you know the, the anti-Semitic attacks in this country are horrible. Um, right. You know, on, on the other side, it's it's become so, you know, everything about this discussion is so tribalized to the nth degree that there is a notion where- Do you think there's an equivalence though on that, Michael? Sorry? Do you think there's an equivalence on like sort of, um, I know it's hard to put a number on it, but do you think that the pro-Israel side in America is as tribal and entrenched as the pro-Palestinian side? Um, you know, it's, it's not something I've thought of. Um, and it's a really complicated question. I, I, I think when you get to to the point of violence in the street, you know, you're you're crossing a big threshold. And I, you know, I actually haven't looked that deeply into those incidents because I, I do sort of dismiss that as, you know, that's violence that's not productive to any sort of conversation. I've been trying to focus a lot more on the facts. Um, so I don't know how much of that comes from a pro-Palestine viewpoint and how much of that comes from an anti-Semitism viewpoint, which, you know, that is, anti-Semitism exists. Um, I, I think the point that I want to make is it, it shouldn't be considered anti-Semitic to criticize or to just even push back on Israeli policy. We, we should be able to do that 
while kind of removing that from the Jewish viewpoint. This was something that I, you know, one of the things I credit Birthright with was kind of challenging me to explore my own Judaism. And I'm, I'm a very non-religious person, right. but I did come out of that feeling more kind of culturally Jewish. And one of the things that I came away with is that, you know, it, or, um, one of the things that they kind of ask in like what it means to be Jewish is should Jews, you know, unequivocally support Israel and defend Israel to their peers. And I said, no, that, that shouldn't be what we do. We should be thinking, you know, critically right. about what's going on. And so I, I do want to, to bring it back. Um, I think this is the macro, this is a macro point right now. The whole anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism debate. Yeah. yeah. You know, we shouldn't be anti-Zionist. We shouldn't be anti-Semitic. We you're saying, oh, we shouldn't be anti-Semitic, we should be anti-Zionist here. No, we should not be. I'm not, I'm not saying be anti- Sorry, I'm, I'm not explaining. I wasn't sure what you were saying. Um, Zionism is fine. What I'm, I, the point I was trying to make is it should not, I've sort of gotten lost in my own thought here. It shouldn't be. You mentioned an important point. I, I like that. I mean, like criticism of Israel is not inherently anti-Semitic. Yes. And I think saying so is actually kind of dangerous. And I, it's not like I disagree with that, with, with the point you made, but I think even like that has become a bit of a meme. Like uh -huh. or trope, like I think I think what what that suggests. And I don't want to be overly critical of that of you know that, that you said that, but I will say this: I think that saying that suggests that you know anti or criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. It implies that you have bad faith attacks against criticism by like Israel supporters that that, that they sort of condemn criticism as anti-Semitic. Now I'm not going to mm -hmm. say that there's been criticism of Israel that's not condemned as anti-Semitic. Like that's actual criticism, not like Israel's a Nazi state. We wouldn't call that criticism, right? We, that's just like crazy. Um, but I will say that you know what? It's a lot of this criticism is rightly deemed completely unfair, and whether like whether the intentions are there or not behind the critic, it's pushing a very lethal narrative. That, for instance, like let's say someone tweets out Israel's ethnically cleansing Palestinians. That's unacceptable. Is that anti-Zionist or is that criticism of Israel? Say it's criticism of Israel. Um, it might not probably. be fair criticism, but it's mm -hmm. you would say it's criticism. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to get across is there are big implications for saying these things. Like I just said, like saying Israel's an apartheid state, might people might deem that to be criticism. I, I actually don't. I, I don't think that you know we can get caught in semantics because maybe like I, I would I would actually defend that. I would say maybe it is criticism, but it's it's lethal criticism. It's it's actually and it foments anti-Semitism. I don't think we should get caught up with saying AOC, for instance, is an anti-Semite. That, that actually doesn't interest me, that question. All I care about is that she's tweeting out things about Israel that make Israel seem like it's barbaric and make Israel supporters seem like they are barbaric for supporting Israel, right? So that's, that's fomenting anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And now, again, I'm not saying that she knows what she's doing. I'm not saying that she's an anti-Semite. The intentions matter less than effects. And the effect of all this stuff and saying Israel is ethnically cleansing Arabs and that it's apartheid, it's racist, the effect is 100% is, is fomenting anti-Semitism. So we can say this is all criticism, but this, this is like very vitriolic criticism, right? Mm -hmm. This is like basically saying Israel's doing unspeakable crimes and Jews here are supporting those crimes. So what do you think that leads to? Yeah. Um... You know, I think there's there's an entire discussion to be had about that. Um, I want to give you a quick opportunity to um, 
to plug your various organizations again and uh, just remind the listeners of um, of the services you guys offer and what you guys do. Appreciate that. Um, and, I, and thank you for the conversation. I, I, I The one thing that I think we can agree on is that I'm, I'm assuming that you would agree that the conversation on this issue is kind of lacking. Mm-hmm. I think it should be a little more informed. Well, it's, it's I think it's become, you know, it is because it's aggressively politicized and it's incredibly intimidating uh, for people. Um, and just doing my own research for this podcast, you know, I, I, I had to limit the amount that I, I could do per day because it, you know, it makes your head spin after a while. And there's, there's so much history, but. And seeing know. the passions of people, like it also is very intimidating. And, you know, you don't want to take the wrong point of view. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, just to, yeah, I appreciate the conversation. I think this is where understanding starts. Um, and um, I, you know, anytime you want to talk about this, I, I would be happy to, in any format. I, I love talking about it. I don't know if you can tell I'm passionate. <laughs> but I'm also, yeah, I'm, I'm very passionately pro-Israel, but I think that also, not I think, I know it comes from a place of truth and, and justice. But like I said, I got involved with this 20 years ago around, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was post 9-11. I was like, we're, I was thinking about, you know, radicalism and Israel was, was defending itself. And I was like, I don't know enough. And, and I feel like these things are not truthful, but I need to know that they're not truthful. I don't want to just accuse people of, of being anti-Israel. I need, so I need to know these things anyway. Okay. My organizations. Um, so, uh, there's fuel for truth. Uh, you could, you know, just Google fuel for truth, Israel, it'll come up. It's basically, it's a great organization. Uh, they uh, educate young professionals around the country. New York is one branch um, around the country about um, Israel's history, how Israel is discussed today, and how we as young professionals can actually lead these discussions in a productive way. And um, the other organization I work part-time for is Club Z. Um, and you can also just Google that, Club Z, Zionism. Uh, that is similar to Fuel for Truth, but it's targeted and uh, it's for uh, teenagers. And we have also many uh, branches of this, or they're both nonprofits and um, they're both important because the bottom line is being educated and knowing how to lead, lead productive uh, conversations. I think that's really ultimately the way that we're gonna come to, um, to peace and, and secure justice. And I will also say third, third generation New York, because you did mention that as for, I'm not as involved anymore, but I did found that this organization in 2005, it's for grandchildren or descendants of Holocaust survivors. There are now, you know, great grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who are young professionals, but sort of the tone of the organization is for like young professionals to come together, share their grandparents' stories. Uh, we do have an initiative where we go into public schools. Now it's, it's via Zoom, share, we share our grandparents' stories and the lessons of the Holocaust and, and intolerance. So that's an important thing because we also, it's using our voices to speak out against hatred and, and to promote dialogue. So yeah. uh, 3GNY is another great organization and uh, I'll check that out. Let me know if you have any questions about any of that stuff. All right. Well, Daniel, this has been really informative. You've given me um, a lot of stuff to think about. Um, and I've, I really had a great time talking to you. Likewise. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Bye.